Welcome to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in the world of the artist and a foot in the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was David B. Meadows. Um, Dave is a great conversationalist. It was a great time we had. If you've noticed, if you've taken a a look at the runtime of this episode, uh, that shouldn't be hard for you to believe because this is a long one. And I promise you it goes by like that. It is um, just right out of the gate. Dave is a really interesting, insightful dude. Um, You know, we've been very fortunate on this show to have guests that are incredibly interesting with incredibly unique, um, not to be duplicated life experiences that are um, surprising and hilarious and sometimes and, and moving certainly. And Dave certainly has all that, but Dave, um, what I really appreciated was his degree of insight and self-knowledge and the amount of time he spent understanding himself and his psyche. And that's something actors do. I mean that, you know, his, his canvas is himself. So that's, uh, paid off and it's certainly paid off when it comes to doing a long form conversation based podcast like this. Um, wow. Just a really good time. I, I literally just, we, we stopped talking a few minutes ago and, um, it was, you know, got close to three hours. Um, I think what he has to say about perspective and what a veteran's perspective does for their art might be the biggest takeaway, um, that one can get from this episode, or, or at least that I did. Um, certainly we kept coming back to that as a theme, but also just, you know, what he knows about psychology, how he's seen that applied in his life, the way he, um, approaches the pitfalls of not just Hollywood, but being an actor and being a creative, uh, when you have expectations to live up to, it's just really interesting. And I think understandable, if not everyone can relate to it in their own lives, uh, I think you can certainly understand it and it gives a real insight and an articulate insight into that very particular lifestyle and the way that his life has played out. So I can't wait for you guys to listen to this. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of Vet Rep, and this is the savage wonder of David B. Meadows. So officially, David B. Meadows. What's up, Dave? How are you? What is going on, Chris? How are, how are you, man? I'm. Uh, um, I'm thrilled you're here. That's how I am. I this this as you and I were saying before the show, like it's uh it's a credit to you that it's been an adventure to try to book this. So I'm thrilled we finally got a hold of you, dude. Thank you so much for your patience on it. It's it, it, like I felt I felt so terrible every single time <laughs> where I'm like. You know, and I'm sitting there, and like a meeting would come up, or or, or or something else is going on, and I'm like, dude, I was supposed I'm supposed to be meeting with Chris and and, and all these guys. <laughs> I've got to be that guy yet again. That's like, hey, can we dude, reschedule? Can we just just wait till your top billing on a movie? I'll never get you again. I, I'm I'm fully dude. prepared for it. I'm inoculated. 
Dude, no, (laughs) you know, know, this, this journey has been such a crazy thing. And so many people like yourself and so many other great people that I've met along the way have just been so generous with their time and like, so understanding. Cause it's, you know, I'm, I would imagine you're the same way as I, especially coming from military backgrounds. I like to keep my schedules, you know, and when I, when I say that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I don't like to obligate and then have to, you know, or any of this stuff. And then we know how it happens. And especially in Hollywood, it's just stuff rolls and things take priority, unfortunately, and stuff, you know, like whatever it's just, it's just difficult. So thank you for rolling. No, of course. And it's weird because, um, I was talking about this with somebody recently and I can't remember who. So if somebody's deeply offended that I'm forgetting who they are, I apologize. But um, the differences in the military outlook versus an artist outlook, where as an artist, and not to say this is what you were doing, but, but just to kind of fully take it to its most extreme levels, there's a degree of narcissism and self first that you need to have as an artist, which is so different from the military because as an artist, nobody gives a shit who you are, unless you give a shit. So you have to front load yourself. You have to prioritize yourself. You have to promote yourself. You have to hustle and go for stuff, which is weird as opposed to the military where you're a number and where it's like, Hey, I I show up, I do this thing and I do everything dress, right dress. And I know that things will fall into place as long as I have a halfway decent, you know, first line supervisor that's giving me the appropriate credit that I should get. Yeah. Was that a weird gear shift for you to kind of go, Hey, or, or if you've not found that to be the case, if you've been like, no, I'm pretty much the same guy and I haven't really had to shift gears at all. Uh, well, first of all, for, first, since we just right after Veterans Day, thank you for your service. What was it? What, what branch? You were Likewise, army? I was I was army. I was I was in a uh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, I know. It's a, it's it's the curse of uh, not being able to not. It's not that I didn't want to hold my breath underwater. It's that I just <laughs> don't have the lung capacity and uh, weird things happen. Um, but dude, thank you for yours. Um, you know, obviously. Well, thank you. You know, and I, and I say, obviously we say that all jokingly, my, uh, my producing partner and, uh, a director and uh, producing partner in my company, uh, is an army vet. He was a, he was a sapper engineer and now is, um, he, he does all of Oprah Winfrey's programs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he's, he's incredibly talented though. I hope he never sees this and <laughs> hear me Wait, say that about him, you know, but, but this is the, we are Oscar Mike guy, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Right on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan Curtis. Yep. Yeah. He's yep. a fantastic guy. He's an f- amazing dude. Um, but he was army. So obviously I just got to right. You know, right. Well, bust his balls every single hey, second. There, yeah. There's hope for the Israelis and Palestinians and the Shia and Sunni at that, you know, maybe said something positive about army. There's no telling what can, what, what the snowball and second order effects of that will be. Yeah. You know? Dogs and cats will live together <laughs> and like everything will be fine. You know, it's uh peace on earth. That's it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, so, so thank yeah. you for your service. No, um, it was. You, you know, getting uh, wow, dude. Uh, transition. Yeah, sorry, I, I kind of threw you right into the deep end of the pool philosophically there. So yeah, it's it, it's it's an incredible question, and the answer is yes. There was a huge learning curve, still is, and actually, it's um, it, it, it ripples out to a lot of things besides for just the things that we were talking about, like scheduling and accountability and uh, self-promotion and things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's such a cultural shock. And I mean, you know, obviously I came from, you know, I was a SEAL team sniper for, for years. Um, I did about a decade. I was active duty from 2000 until 2009. And then I was a reserves from nine to 2013. Okay. Um, and I was commissioned to SEAL in late 2002. 
2003. So I did about six years active right around there, mm-hmm. six years gotcha. of active duty in the teams. Um, and then obviously as a reservist, I was a, you know, I was a seal, uh, the whole time. And we're definitely going to um, get into that, by the way, lest it not be said, we will dive full, full float, full throatedly into that and, and cover every aspect of that that we can. But yeah, yeah anyway, sorry, just, a, um, let's not be but, said. But so yeah, getting, going from that, in that community and that mindset and that just way of behaving, you know, in what you're, what you're doing. And then we're honestly any, any sort of self-promotion is actually a deficit. You know I mean? Right. Like people are like, who do you think you are? You piece of shit, you know, get, get in line, you know, we're here as a unit and as a team and you're not the coolest guy in the world. Like to stop thinking that, yeah. y- you know what I mean? It, like, so you get that kind of beaten out of you very quick and realize that it's, when I'm in a one, one, if you and I are working, my the most important person in my life is you, and then vice versa, and that's how we keep each other safe and we and we take care of this stuff, right? You know, we always have this semblance, uh, you know, where we, um, uh, uh, you know, what is it, um, you know, team gear, squad gear, personal gear, you know, and then yourself, right? You take care of everything that the team needs, and then you take care of the stuff that's the squad, and then you take care of your personal gear, and then you take care of yourself. And you don't get in the shower and wash your, you know, <laughs> wash yourself off until every other piece of gear has already been accounted. You are last, you know. And so to get into the industry where it's like, two, I mean, there really is that thing, dude. I think it's this um, self promotion is a huge thing because you said it better. No one gives a shit about you unless you give a shit about you and you show them why they should. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, now, of course, the key is to try to do that without without an arrogance or without a narcissism, right. you know, or without a destructive right. narcissism. But, right. but I think that you know, I had a uh, and this is kind of it waves. Off, it's in the same vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, apologize for getting off on a little tangent there, but no, you're good. One of my uh, one of my teachers, uh, one of my acting teachers, uh, named Julie. Um, she's an incredible, incredible actress, just brilliant. And she used to talk to me all about something that she used to call the actor's ego. Mm. And she doesn't mean ego in like a in a negative way, right? But she said she's like, in order to get out there on stage <clears throat> and act, you have to honest to God believe that you have something willing to share. And you have to believe that there is something inside of you. It's not a narcissism, like, like a negative, like, right. like a, oh, I'm so cool. But it's literally like saying, I have something and I want to give it yeah. to you. Yeah. And you need this in your life. And you have to honest to God believe that, that you have something unique and beautiful and precious that you're going to give to the audience. And if you can't, if you go out on the stage going, why are you watching me? Blah, blah, blah. You're gone. You're done. Oh. And it reads you know? so badly. Like you can tell, you know, you know, when you were anywhere, I see it, this is going to be a weird example, but when you see like those old uh, Johnny Carson uh, outtakes and, and not even outtakes, just uh, excerpts from the, from his old show, when he'd bring a civilian up on stage and they're like, yeah, I'm a firefighter. I'm a cop or something like this. And you'd see he and all the other performers on stage would be really loose and you're getting their full bodied essence. And then whoever this first responder is military person, whatever is kind of like a shell of a human being. Like they don't translate on stage because there's that reticence to believe that you're worthy of sharing a story or of having something to impart. It's just not the culture. It's not where your head's at. Yeah. And for all the different reasons, I mean, for what, yeah, it's either that or they feel an arrogance or they're like, well, who am I? All these things that we're talking about, but Yeah. yeah, it's like you honest to God have to believe that you have something precious and valuable and unique to share and that you are worthy of people's time and attentions. And if you don't believe that, 
it, it will translate and the audience won't watch you or people won't care what you're saying because you, you told them not to, you know, you told them that what you're saying doesn't matter. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And wh- how is that translated for you now? Like, do you find yourself, do you find any trace of that in yourself? Any reticence of going, eh, is there ever that uh, a grind to get up in front of people? Or at this point, are you over it? Are you like, Nope, I'm comfortable. I'm in the zone. I know what I'm about and I'm here to share and I'm diving into it. And there's no hesitation. Uh, there is, there is the grind every day. Really? Honestly. Yeah. And I find it both, you know, in my professional, in my work as an actor, but also in my work as a producer, right. You know, it's sometimes there's, there's a, there's a thing where, you know, I'll be sitting there, not only getting up on stage and then sitting there and, and going, you know, and I, I used to think it all the time here. It was, it was very interesting. So I, I am, I mean, we'll get into it, but I, but I ended up, I was very fortunate. I went to a, uh, um, a very prestigious conservatory. Right. And I'm sitting there with these kids that are so talented. And most of them went to, to Yale and Juilliard and all these other places. And I'm sitting there in class and there's eight of us. And I'm sitting there on the first day and I'm watching these kids, you know, and me and these seven other kids, and I'm watching these kids get up and I'm going, holy shit, these kids are good. Like they are good. Yeah. What the fuck am I doing here? You know? And like, and that was a thing. And to the credit uh, of Jade McCarthy, who was the, uh, the head of this program, he called me on it. It was, it was a lesson that I learned very interesting because it tied into that. I would walk on the stage and he would finally, he kept calling me back. He's like, Dave, go back. Dave, go back. Go, Dave, stop. Get out. Go back. And I finally came up and I was like, what do you want? He's like, I want you to stop apologizing for being here. Mm. And I'm like, what? And he's like, every time you walk on stage, you apologize. You don't think you should be here. You don't think you're talented. You don't think this. You don't think that. Wow. And you don't think that we should. Wow. Like, and that's what you read as. You read that you are apologizing for interrupting our time. That we're the audience and we're sitting here and you're coming out going, hey, guys, I know you didn't come to see me. And if you did, I don't know why you ever would. And like, I know I'm not worried. Please just ignore me. He's like, that's what you read. Right. Wow. Wow. Get on the stage like you're supposed to be here and that you are here to share with us and you are worthy of our time and attention. Yeah. Because you got something to share, not because it's arrogance, but you have something precious. You have a gift to give us and you're here to give us a gift. And once I started looking at the work like that, it was like, oh, wow, it's okay. Yeah. Because I think that when I went into this work, you know, it it was a culmination of that, right? Like from the backgrounds that you and I have, you know, where it is all about team and not about self. And, and also I think there's a culture, I'm trying to think of how to express this, but I think that there's also a cultural thing in my experience where we're taught that ego is bad and we're taught that some sort of stuff like as a thing, like don't be selfish, don't be egotistical, don't think about yourself and all this other kind of stuff. And as I've come to understand it, that kind of gets grossly over exaggerated, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what it really is, is what we should say is like harmful or narcissistic ego is bad, but, right. there's, nothing, but right. there's nothing wrong with having belief in yourself. Right. That's a fine line to draw. That's right. It's really fine. And we don't normally get taught that because it gets all lumped together. And all of a sudden you, you, people use words like "oh, ego and that becomes a negative dirty word. Right. Right. As opposed to what people should say is like narcissism, you know, or like arrogance or things like that. But healthy ego, man, like knowing what you're about and what you stand for and the gift that you have to give to people 
There's nothing wrong with that. Well, also, let me throw this out here. What do you think about the military's culture of shit talking? I mean, for the time you're a private, it's there's a constant sense of bitching, moaning, complaining, which is kind of part of the bonding, right? You have to have shared stuff in order to get some some bonding, but that can start to morph into oh that fucking guy, oh this fucking guy, and you see that played out mm-hmm. in, even in the into the veteran community, where then somebody starts to rise above the rest, and now it's shoot him down, and there's a little you you kind of put a target on yourself because you're no longer part of the pack. Um, so it's weird that sense of, Hey, who the fuck do you think you are to be rising out or standing out or doing something different like this? Have you seen any of that? Is that, am I, am I onto something or is absolutely, you know, and, um, you know, it's really interesting because, uh, besides for acting, one of my other biggest passions in the world is psychology. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very big proponent of uh, neuro-linguistic programming and the subconscious mm-hmm. brain and a student, you know, I'm a Jungian uh, student. And um, and so really what you're talking about there, and it's amazing because I've actually asked myself that question a lot. And it's one of the things I've noticed in recent years where I've made, once I started really learning about all this kind of stuff. So for any of your viewers, if you're interested in this, this is incredibly powerful. Look it up. It's amazing. Even things like self-deprecating humor and, and, you know, and shit talking and all this other kind of stuff, we do it all the time, but we don't realize the impact that it actually has on your brain. The spoken word of a human being is the most powerful thing that you can possibly do, especially when you speak about yourself. So even if I say something and I walk into the room and you're like, Hey dude, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I'm just being an idiot. That shit's actually not good for you. Because done by, and people are like, oh, I'm just kidding. I was just joking. Right, I don't right, actually, right. It's like, actually, your subconscious brain doesn't know the difference. So as you continuously bleed and say these things for years and years and years, slowly it starts to develop your, your viewpoint of the world and of your viewpoint of yourself. And that's how you end up getting into those kind of perspectives where eventually that shared bitching about stuff yeah, yeah. actually makes you a negative person. And it slowly starts to, you know, put it and people are like, oh, we're just kidding, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you're not. You've kidded so much. It's became true for you. And this is the point of like your daily affirmations and stuff when people try to reverse that, right? And do I am sentences that kind of flip that. Right. Because there's, there's, uh, you know, very, very quickly, you know, I was actually taking a course last week with this company called Higher Echelon. And and they're they're a bunch of uh, PhDs from Dartmouth and Harvard and all these other kind of places. And they're all neuroscientists and they're high level performers. We work with them in the teams. Uh, They work on every professional sports team, high level CEOs and all this other kind of stuff. And their, their entire job is to teach people about the power of how your brain works and how you can remap the way that you speak and Mm. think about things to have a higher level performance in any area of your life, whether you're an actor or a seal or a a corporate CEO or whatever it is, but it's all based on neuro-linguistic programming and and psychology. And one of the things that we talk about is the abundance, excuse me, aggressive or, you know, an aggressive versus a victim mentality a forward thinking versus a defensive standpoint and an abundant versus a scarcity mindset. And all of these things on the right-hand side, defensiveness, fear, scarcity, which if you look, that's how most of what those, those shit talking. So that's kind of stuff like that. That's all in those veins. Literally, you can actually see the difference on a, um, uh, on a, uh, on an MRI or yeah. 
yeah, for the, for the brain. You can actually look and see the difference on the brain. It sends out the signals in the brain when you are thinking negatively wow. as opposed to when you are thinking positively. Wow. And from an abundance and everything like that, we talk about it. You see it all the time in pro athletes, right? Where, but just as a quick example, right? You have a guy who's going through and they're just constantly on the aggressive there. They constantly are believing on the positive. They have an abundant mindset. They can do this. They can do that. Right. And then one thing happens. Maybe they, they get beaten or something like that, like as a boxer or UFC guy or something like that. And all of a sudden their confidence gets shattered and they're never the same fighter again. And they just go downhill. It's not because they're less skilled or because they're physically harmed anymore. It's because that fear has made itself into their brain. And now all of a sudden they're going to a scarcity defensive mindset rather than an aggressive, abundant mindset. It's also one of the reasons why you see, by and large, there are a few examples, of course, people who are just unstoppable on their way up the ranks, you know, trying to become right. like, to use a combat, you know, like a UFC or, an, or a boxing, right. something like that. They're unstoppable as they get up to the top. And then once they become the top, they just crash immediately. And they talk all about why it's so hard for people to remain the champion. And all of a sudden, most people, most psychologists would tell you, it's because when they're coming up the ranks, they have nothing to lose. So they're just constantly aggressive, constantly on the abundance. Yep. They're fearless. Yep. Mm -hmm. But once they get here, they're scared because now they have to defend and they're worried and they're going to lose. And like, they know it's, and they get that into their head, which brings wow. them down. And that's a prime example of how you see that shift. They're still the same person. They have all this skill. Right, right. Yeah. Physically, nothing's think, changed. Yeah. Yeah. And you would think that being the champion would give them more confidence, but right. it typically doesn't. It actually steals their confidence because now they're sitting there going, oh God, I have nowhere else to go. Now I have to defend. If I fail, fall, you know, like it's all, it's, it's, that's the prime example of the fear versus the abundance mindset and the defense. Does that make sense? That makes tons of sense. That's super interesting. And actually, yeah, I love the explanation. I love the breakdown of that and how that plays out. What have you been? Have you, because even as a, as a tadpole to use your language. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have all this background. You didn't have all this education. You hadn't done all this studying. You right. must've been a pretty positive dude though, to begin with. Right. An aggressive <laughs> I, mindset and relatively forward thinking. Well, I, I was, and you know, it's actually kind of interesting because when I was growing, I didn't, I didn't know all this stuff. Right. I just kind of worked on it, but my mother was a, um, was a therapist for a while and all this kind of, uh, she just kind of always grew me with that without teaching me the science, but she always enacted that sort of thing. However, so yeah, when I got into, when I went to Buds and I went to everything place else, I adapted that. However, I actually failed out of Buds the first time. And my second time through Buds, I almost failed out again, but I ended up getting medically rolled. So I did two thirds of Buds twice. I did all the first phase and all the second phase twice. I did two hell weeks, everything else. Right. So were you medically, was it a medical drop the first time? You, you no, it was, VW. It, was, it was a performance drop. I actually got okay. kicked out for because okay. I, I failed a test. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now, the interesting thing about it is now that I have this knowledge and I looked back on it, I went, holy fuck, it's because I was scared. All of a sudden, I was blowing through buds like my first time. I was blowing through buds like I didn't even give a shit. Like everything was fine. I was rocking all the tests. Everything was fine. And then I got to the test that I had psyched myself down before I ever went to buds. I was like, this is the test. This is going to be really hard for me. I got to get through it. I got to get, through what, what was it? What was the test? It was drown proofing. Oh, where, yeah. where they uh, tie your hands and feet up and throw you yeah. in the water and all that kind of stuff. And for whatever reason I had a big, I, had, I was very scared of that. And so before I even showed up to buds, 
I had this fear this, I had built this monster in my mind of how hard this test is going to be. And this is the one I got to get through. This is it. This is it. Yeah. Sure. Shit. What happens? I have a little bit of problem with it. I fail it. And then that was it. It was downhill after that. I kept getting fucking hammered on the thing. And then I got thrown out because I failed. Yeah. Um, it's a prime example of how, like, as soon as I turn to a place of fear and like worry about a test, I passed every other test because I honestly just didn't care about them. I was just like, yeah, I got this shit moving on. You know, like I did, I barely even thought about it. It was just like, yeah, I'm graduating. I'm becoming a seal done deal. Oh, this little test. Yeah, no problem. Right. And then I got to this one and all of a sudden it became this Herculean thing and I failed. Right. Cause I built it up so much negatively in my mind. Right. Um, and when I looked back on other times in my life, like that have happened since then, when I've experienced the biggest successes or the biggest failures in my life, both in my personal with relationships, like with, mm-hmm. with romantic relationships or, or career-wise or achievement-wise, I can always trace it back. That's why I became such a believer and so fascinated with this, with this science of this neural programming and everything else is because I've seen the proof in my own life Yeah, where when I have self-examined going back and I was like, where was my head at when this happened? Why was it so hard? And then I'm like, holy fuck, I was in a scarcity mindset. I was scared. I was acting out of fear and desperation that I didn't think was fear and desperation at the time. I thought I was, oh, no, I'm just trying to fix it. I'm just trying to do it. But really, it was it was a. <laughs> so in, so instead of having um, the sense of, well, it's nothing, it's no big deal, which is a tough thing to kind of wrap yeah. your mind around because Especially that's kind of like especially when you care that that's that that's because people have told me that I, I i'm the exact same way and people will say yeah just relax and just treat it like anything else like well motherfucker if i could treat it like anything else i wouldn't be doing any of this right you know exactly. so you're saying what the shift is is it had to be one of aggression instead of scarcity or one of what, what's the flip what's what's the counter to i that? think i think so i so i actually read i mean like without getting into the whole neural science of it, uh, but, yeah. but yes it's it's i always sit there and i say am i trying to defend or am I trying to win? Okay. Interesting. And and it can sometimes be both. Like if you're trying to, you know, we used to have a, we used to have an idea like, so, okay. So to put it into like a SEAL team term or something mm-hmm. like that, when people are oftentimes looking at uh, some very, uh, you know, and this is not advice for anyone listening out there, but you know, it's one of the things <laughs> right. that goes on. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I used to get consulted and a lot of my, uh, you know, a lot of my teammates and brothers would get consulted a lot of time on like um, surviving uh, terrorist incidents or, you know, like a, like a shooter, you know, active shooter incidents right. like that. I can tell you right now, if I was ever in a building, it, it, like any SEAL, if I was ever in a building just chilling and an active shooter engagement came up, I would go kill that fucker, not hide, not run away. I would go kill his ass. Because that's how we're taught. Is this like you don't hide, you neutralize the threat. You go take right. the surest way to survive is to win, you know. So we always had this. Um, we had this analogy that was always put out in the table. But but sorry. But on that note, most people are taught to hide, or to pacify, sure. or to be defensive and to be scared because sure. not to provoke. I'm like, dude, that will get you killed. Now you're in that scarcity, that defensive, like fear based mentality. Whereas what I'm saying is I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go kill him. I will survive because I have killed him. Like it's not the, you know what I mean? Whereas yep, when people yep. just put their focus on trying to survive, which makes it a defensive fear-based thing. My focus is on just murder that dude. 
and I will survive as a byproduct of it. Hundred percent. Yeah. That is the that is the actual. Um, but that's the differentiation, you know. So I uh, so I learned this actually in combat. It was I, so I have a, a book for anyone who's interested in this topic. Um, read Psycho Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. Are you familiar with that book, Chris? I'm, I'm not, and I'm going to put it in the show notes. So yeah, I'm glad you're mentioning it. Psycho Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. Absolutely revolutionary in the in oh. the field of developmental psychology, and most all developmental stuff that's going on right now um, is all based on his teachings because he actually made this back in the '60s, but uh, has been updated and updated and updated. And sure, like sure. But he gives an analogy in there which is so ironic. You ever read one of those things that as soon as you read it, you know it's true because it's mm-hmm. like resonates yeah. with you. Yeah, sure. So he gives an example in the book that I actually learned years before I ever read his book. When I was driving, when I was learning combat driving in the, in the teams, I'm at a racing school and we're driving and the teacher told me, I'll never forget this. We're, we're driving, we're just hauling ass, fucking getting sideways around corners, you know, doing all the fun stuff. Right. right. And he very quickly goes, Dave, when you're driving like this, always focus on where you want the car to go, not on where it's going. Keep your brain always focused towards where you want to go because the car will always go where you're focused. So if you're driving and you start sliding around a corner and you're coming towards a tree and you look and go, oh, fuck, don't hit that tree. Don't, oh, hit, that tree. Yeah, don't, yeah. Hit, don't hit that tree every time. <laughs> so sorry, but that reminds me of one of my favorite jump stories. Uh, and I know everybody's got their jump stories, but did you ever, it's not an NSW hub, but did you ever go to Stuttgart? Do you ever jump in Stuttgart? I didn't. In Germany? No. It, it, one of the drop zones uh, for, for SOCAF and SOCIR that they use is this little, very small patch of, of, uh, of drop zone uh, with a hardball road going around it and then barbed wire fence going around that. And then it's all fields except for a, like a, I want to say 10 or 13 story office building, <laughs> then right next to it, just in the right. middle of this field for no good reason. And without fail, They'll tell you um, before the jump, hey, don't hit the office building. So what does everybody do? Everybody hits the office building, right? right. And then every jump gets canceled because somebody's chute is sucked in the HVAC and somebody's right. dangling, you know, four stories up or something like that. So, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I just love that story because I just I'll always think of people hitting the fucking office building. But to your point, exactly that, that you're looking at what you shouldn't be looking at and say what you should be looking at. You, your brain does not know the difference between positive or negative focus. All it knows is focus. So whatever you focus on, you will get, whether you want it or not, doesn't matter. Interesting. Brain gives you what you focus on. If you're jumping in that jump zone and you're looking at that building going, I don't want to hit that building. I don't want to hit the building. You're going to fucking hit the building. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But if you ignore the building and you're sitting there looking at a place on the field and you're saying, oh, I'm going to that point on the field. Right. You will avoid the building inherently because you're going to the place on the field. Or it's a stressor because even though you're focused on the building, you manage not to hit it, but you're so stressed out from the effort it took to overcome your lack of focus on what you should have been focused on that you're right. just you know, worn. You're mentally fried. Yeah. Now, dude, so this is, I mean, I, I know we're a little off topic, but um, your fault and it's yeah. awesome stuff. It's, it's fucking, it really is. It's, I, I love this shit. Um, I I've always been drawn to psychology and it's one of those things I just don't have the bandwidth to do. Did you formally study? Did you go to school for it? Or is this something you read in your spare time? and have just been fascinated with. Oh, so when I actually went to, uh, when I went to school, I actually studied my undergraduate is in, um, 
uh, I have a bachelor's of science in organizational leadership. Okay. Um, but while I was actually studying for that, I also took out a minor in, in psychology because gotcha. I was so, so, so fascinated by it. So I never pursued after that. And then obviously I never pursued it thereafter because I started onto the theater school, you know, pipeline for advanced degrees. However, I read every book that I possibly can now yeah. on psychology and especially any sort of developmental psychology and the subconscious brain um, and everything like that. It's, it's so, so yes. So, I am, so- I am, Sorry, so not to cut you off, but I'm I'm interested. How much, how much do you regret that you didn't know all of this? Let's say in 2000 when you went into the Navy, and how much are you like, God damn, I really wish I'd known that then? Or are you like, No, I kind of learned this when I needed to, and this is the perfect time for me to be realizing this and actualizing it. A, a little bit of both of it, actually. You know, of course, I look back and I sit there and say, Fuck, if I knew all of this, if I knew, you know, then what I know now. But at the same time, and then I'll chastise myself and go, no, because what you know now is that's no benefit for you to regret what you didn't right. know then, you know, because, right. Right. because all it does is put you on the negative again, sure. right? Sure. Um, yeah. So a little bit of both in reality. Um, <laughs> it's a catch-22. You can't get out of the loop. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't get, get out of well, that path. That's, yeah. that's the part about the brain is that it's right. the loop, right? Right. Even if you have the knowledge, your brain, especially the subconscious and the egoic part of the brain are so sneaky with the way that they do things is that it colors every thought and every perception and every belief that you have. So really to be able to challenge this stuff is to challenge all of your own beliefs, your own thoughts, your own perceptions, and to have a, have like kind of step away and go, wait a minute, is anything I think or believe actually true? Right. Right. Or is it just the way I've been programmed? You know, and, and, and that's really the battle. And then you start arguing, no, it is. Yes, it is. You know, well, what, what was, what was that Shakespeare quote is uh, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. You know, yes, absolutely. Right you know, well, Shakespeare said everything. Right. I know. I know. The rest of us can all go away now. Yeah. He kind of covered it all. I want to start like, like we're starting now, 35 minutes in. I want to actually start with the beginning for you. Yeah. Who, and I'm, and, and I'm going to call the beginning high school because it seems like everybody's identity in high school seems to impinge strongly on who they become as a person. Who were you in high school? Were you the jock? Were you an arts kid? Were you a goth? Who, who were you? I was a goth. Were I you really? Saying, uh, uh, yeah, I was a goth punk man. I was, um, so I was big into. I was like the most unpopular kid in the high school. You know, all this other deal. I, um, you know, I did well in school. I actually got kicked out of private. I went to a, a very prestigious high school, and then I got kicked out of private school, and then I got kicked out because I just refused to work. Um, big regret, you know, but it is what it is. No, um, right. Went can, to, can, went to, sorry, can I just say the only reason I even threw goth in there is because so many you have so many still pictures of you doing horror. That like yeah. the image of you is burned in my brain is like constantly goth, constantly some makeup on you or something like that. So go figure. Okay. Sorry. Not to interrupt. Yeah. It's interesting, man. You know, but um, so yeah, I mean, I'm actually still involved in the, the golf, the goth culture and things like that, you know, and uh, whatever, not just as a part of identity now, but you know, it's just, it's something different, but yeah, I was the goth kid. I was the very unpopular. Um, I was a really good wrestler and a really good okay. martial artist. I was, a, I was a very, very active martial artist guy. So what were you doing? You know, Josh, what were you doing? This uh, so was the 90s, right? Yeah. Like it was okay. right before UFC and all that other kind of okay. stuff. Um, so I was doing uh, predominantly, I studied uh, Aikido and uh, Jiu Jitsu. And then I studied Bondo, which is actually a Burmese the system. Burmese. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Now, Bondo was my primary system that I actually studied. Really? Yeah. 
Um, was your teacher actually Burmese? Where did, how did you learn it? So, so interestingly enough, so the uh, the grandmaster of Bondo, which is uh, Dr. Mong Gi, uh, immigrated from Burma, and he actually resides in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and then he taught nine students directly underneath him, which became the, t- the nine masters. And I was so lucky that at the t- high school that I went to, one of the teachers, one of the nine masters was also there. He was, uh, he was the wrestling uh, coach that was there. Really? Yeah. Wow. And uh, so when I started wrestling and then I started training with him privately uh, for Bondo and everything like that, his name is Doc, uh, Mr. Tom Hogan. And uh, he's a fantastic, incredible, incredible martial artist. Um, but, you know, that's just kind of what it was. Uh, so I started studying that and then I started hodgepodging. And then, of course, uh, I was a great swimmer, too, but I was never a team sport guy, like no football, baseball, none of that. Got you. Got you. Um, but all life skills, all stuff, all sports you could do for life. Right. And all men- like develop like mentality kind of yeah. kind of. You know, and I think that that's where what Tom taught me very early on is, you know, he's like, dude, if you're in a wrestling match or you're in a fight, your job is to kill the motherfucker, not to survive. Your job is not to survive this fight. Your job is to dominate him, you know, and if you dominate him, you will survive as a byproduct. But if you're just trying to survive, you get killed. Like that's it's that's mindset again. You know, I mean, to be the aggressor and not the victim. Right. Were you good at all this? Yeah. You're going into it. So you were good at it. Yeah. So yeah, while, it was, it while was, everything it, else wasn't great, that was going really well. That was really well. Yeah. Okay. I, I was actually, I was a really, really, I was just, I was a very, I was a very good fighter. Um, okay. I was also a good swimmer, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and I was also a huge, still am huge D and D, you know, uh, uh, role-playing guy and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, playing all the old uh, role-playing games and all that kind of stuff. So I was, I was very in that culture, right? Uh, the more the nerd, the, the goth culture and everything yep. like that. Um, so originally I wanted to be an architect and then I changed my mind. I was going to go to medical school and then I changed my mind, you know, and I decided I didn't like school that much. And, uh, uh, because I have a hard time, not because I don't like learning. I don't like learning things I don't care about. Sure. Sure. You know? Yep. Um, and I still, to this day, I mean, I get it, but you know, I still sit there and go, dude, if I'm going to be a psychologist and, and I'm going to learn about this, that, and the other thing, why do I give a shit about, you know, advanced trigonometry or something. You, you right, know what I mean? Right, like, right, it's just right. like, leave that to the mathematicians. But yep. anyway, uh, so I decided not, but, but I always had an instinct that I knew I wanted to, I believe in experiencing life and, and discovering what I'm about and everything that life has to offer and what I have to offer. So I knew that a quote unquote normal life was never for me. You know, yep. like it was never to me to go, go to college and get the office job and have the wife and kid. Like that was just never me. I wanted to have a life that was like, I wanted to have the kind of life that people wrote fucking books about. Yep. yep. You know, Absolutely. that's what I wanted. Yeah. And I wanted to test myself and experience everything that life has to offer. Um, and so I saw an advertisement for the seals at one point on discovery channel. I was like, that's for me. And then, so every other person that I was like, they, I tell people that and they're like, dude, nobody makes it into that program. That's ridiculous. You know, blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. I was like, nope, I'm going to make it. Somebody has to make it and I'm going to. And everybody told me, no, just made me want it more. Right. Of course. And at this point, were you in high school? Were you in college? Where were you? I was, I was in high school. Okay. All right. Um, so I was in high school um, and I ended up getting a mentor, you know, that, that helped me. A lot. Uh, so I graduated high school. I joined right into the Navy, right at 18. Wow. Wow. And, uh, you know, went to, went into the Navy, did all basic, you know, did all that kind of stuff. Went to Bud's the first time, got a third of the way through, failed out, went to MP, Master at Arms 
training, oh, yeah, but sure. military police yeah, sure. um, down in Texas. And then I went to Suda Bay Creek, Greece for 14 months, I was stationed over there as an MP. And when I was on my way to Greece, I was on home on leave mm-hmm. before I went to Greece. That's when 9-11 happened. So I was home on leave. I'd been in the military, you know, for nine months, you know, or yeah, today, right, a year, right. or like something like that. Um, you know, about a year. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, so obviously that changed some shit. Um, went to Greece, finished that up, went back to Bud's, uh, you know, and started all over again. Got two thirds of the way through, had a little hiccup, rolled back one third of the way. And then graduate. I graduated Bud's class 245. Um, and that was 2002? Is that when you graduated? Yeah, 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right around there. Like, yeah, okay. yeah somewhere okay. around that time. Yeah. Um, I want to say it's still like July 2002. Um, so, so, let, me, let me pause right there if I can, yeah. because I want to dive into some of this a little bit just because I find it interesting. Um, when you're an MP, when you're a master at arms, are you done with the SEALs at that point? Or were you just biding your time until you could get back into another Bud's class? So interestingly, so at first, all I thought about was getting back to buds. Okay. All I thought about. Sure. And then about a, you know, like, because I got dropped and then I had to, you know, there was a period of time where I was just dropped, but I was in limbo. And then, then I went to, and then I went to MA school and there was all that time. And then I went to Greece for 14 months. So it was like, you know, over a year and a half, almost a year and eight months in between the time I got dropped to the time I got back. Right. It was a long time. Yeah. Especially when you're fucking 19, you know, 20 years old. Totally. Yeah. That's like 10% of your life. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so at first I was incredibly, insanely gung-ho, like focus level on, that was it. And then there was a point where I kind of reached a wall and I started like kind of relaxing on myself. And then there became a period of like six months where I relaxed a lot. I was uh, partying a lot, stopped working out. I started hanging out with a bunch of people and I was sitting there and there became a point where I started coming up for orders. And I really considered for a heartbeat, not going back to bus, not applying again. And I thought about it and there was like this nagging feeling for a while. I was like, do I really want to put myself through this again? Do I really want yeah. to make, I could make a career elsewhere. Maybe I'll just get out of the military and go do something else. Do I really want this? And dude, you're a grease getting a suntan and drinking a lot. And like, and that's all part like, Yeah. I want to go back and do fucking sugar cookies and for you know, buds again. Yeah, like, are buds? you serious? Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. And then there was a point and I don't remember exactly, what, but there was, there was a point in time where I seriously considered it or at least pseudo. Yeah. Considered it. yeah, sure. And then I sat there and I said, if I'm on my deathbed and look back, will I regret that? Yeah. Yeah. And the answer was obviously yes. You know? And I said, Am I trying to take the easy, comfortable way now? Is this something I truly don't want? Or is it something that's just hard and scary? And if I'm on my deathbed, if I have to look at, like, what will I tell my children or my grandchildren when they ask me about my past and they ask me about my my growing up and I tell them, what will I say about why I didn't go back to training? And so I said, no, this 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 is a part of my life. This is a part of my path. And I need to see it through. And if I go back to Bud's 
and I fail out again or I just can't make it, then so be it. Right. Right. But I cannot go back or I will regret it forever. It will nag in my brain forever if I don't do this. Yeah. So I went back, you know, and that, and you made that decision before nine 11, like you'd, you'd already gotten over the hump mentally after nine 11, but, I mean, but, but mentally that, you'd made the decision though. Like, yeah, I'm going to go back to buds. This yes. thought process happened without even the motivation of holy shit, we're going to war. Not, you didn't even need that. Nothing to do with my had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Yep. I wanted to be a seal before nine 11. I had already failed out of buds the first time at nine 11. And then I was already obsessed on going back. I, I didn't start to question whether I wanted to go back until nine months after nine 11, sure. you know, or a year after nine 11. Okay. Um, and then of course I went back, um, battled through, you know, had done a lot of growing in those last year and a half, two years, um, and then went back and did everything and so on and so forth. And then finally, uh, graduated through the program, you know, um, and this is kind of, you know, so, so I was, uh, so I went to SDV team two, which is out on the East coast, uh, the seal delivery vehicle, the, the super asshole little freaking submersible thing. That's like the worst. The thunderball uh, looking little machine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the little riding on a torpedo, right. you know, yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. for anyone who's listening, I get this question all the time. It is not dry in there. It is fucking wet and cold. No, it's not heated. It's dark and it's freezing cold inside of that thing the whole time, you know. So don't don't right. think it's you know right. in, a, in a in a Rolls Royce or something. Um, I don't know why people always think they're like, is it wet in there or is it dry? I'm like, no, it's wet. It's very wet, very cold. Um but so I became, I kind of fell onto the, uh, you know, the cool thing about the teams is that you get all of this training and all of these different, and you become a jack of all trades, Right. but then people naturally gravitate towards more advanced levels of training to whatever they naturally are proficient and, and have a passion for. So I became a sniper and a recce guy. And I became like more on the reconnaissance spook side of things rather than on the door kicking side of things, which I just, I just thought it was cool and fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I liked sneaking around and, and doing cool shit like that. Um, so I did that for a long time, um, but then I started to develop into a lot of people don't know this and without getting into the details that I can't get into, um, there are aspects of the teams that are actually a lot of undercover work and in uh, and, and more human intelligence. So and, you're talking about the ASOP programs and stuff like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, a lot yep. of those like yep. level two, level yep. three programs, right. all that kind of stuff, right. you know? Um, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. So. So did you I go started, to level three? Did you get, do you become an I, I did not. So okay. what I was actually right. doing, I was on the path of doing that. That okay. was, that was gotcha. where my path was. And mm-hmm. I was, I was getting recruited for those programs and I was like, dude, this is, this is cool. Yeah. You know, this is, it just, it, it like, I was very passionate about that sort of work. Yeah. And I was like, this is, this is dope. I could totally be a recce human Intel, like undercover dude. Like I would love this. So I started getting introduced to that sort of a work and I was very excited to start going down that path for the next part of my career. Right. Um, and then a bunch of shit happened, uh, uh, nothing bad, but it was, it was a thing where detailing issues and my team was getting shut down and like all this other kind of stuff and, you know, in whatever the case is, but anyway, it put me in this tumultuous place where once again, I was sitting here going, you know, I've been a seal for almost, you know, six years now, I, you know, and all this, and I wasn't having fun anymore. Like I wasn't, I wasn't having as much fun anymore and more and more time I would find myself when I was at work or whatever the case is, kind of not wanting to be there, you know, and it wasn't because of anything that was going on. It wasn't the guys, the guys are amazing, all this other stuff. It was just, I just didn't have the passion for it that, that I had had, you know, when I, when I first got in there, it was just, it was, it was whatever need that I had that led me to there had been fulfilled. 
you know? Yeah. And now there was a part of me that was looking for the next thing to continue my growth as a human being, right? Is what I think it was. That makes total sense. Can I want to, I want to mine some of the stuff that you've, you've covered already, if you don't mind, um, sure. and just, and just drill into it a little bit more first. Um, I'm taking you back a little bit and I'm sorry, cause we're on the downslope of your, your seal career now. And I want to go back to the, 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 you know, your, your big penultimate moment there. How'd you feel when you got pinned now, <laughs> now that you've gotten through, I mean, was were you like, was there a sense of you'd really climbed a mountain and holy shit, I am what I hoped I would be? Or was there a sense of, um, I'm not even focused on the moment because I'm just so forward looking that I'm just looking at the next adventure and looking at the next task in front of me. Where was your head at when all that happened? Surprisingly, it was to the latter of what you just said. Okay. I, you know, for so many years, I had been idolizing that moment of actually becoming a seal and, 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 you know, and get my dream coming true. And I worked so fucking hard for it. And I, and I, and I, it was, it was just, it was literally a dream come true. Obviously it was a dream come true in my life. And I always remember standing there when I, when I walked buds first, because, you know, when you graduate buds, you're not actually a seal. You still have like nine more months of training before you actually get commissioned. You know, buds is just the first part of the pipeline. But I remember when I graduated buds, my mother was there and they rang the bell and graduated the class and everything like that. And I was so fucking high on the whole thing. Like it was so amazing. And then I, you know, continued on. I went to jump school and I went to SQT and I did all this other kind of stuff. Um, and then the day I actually got pinned by uh, Captain Rick Smithers came over and he pinned us all. I was very excited. I was very happy, of course. But I remembered thinking I wasn't nearly as happy as I thought I would be. Huh. Yeah. And it, it wasn't because that it was less of what I thought, but it was literally just like, it was funny because all of the instructors and everybody else were all sitting there like, yeah. And then we're like, and the instructors were like, good job, dumbasses, get the fuck to work now. Now you've brought right. your practice, right. go work. Right. Right. You know? And it's kind of like, oh, <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, get to work, you know, like, it, 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 you know, like, good job. You graduated school. Now go actually do something, you right. know? Right. And, it, it, you know, and so there was that transition period. So it, it actually was very, not nearly as overwhelming as I thought it would actually yeah. be, yeah. you know? And then, um, and then when you were on the teams and now you're, were you on one team the whole time? Were you yeah, always I was at SCV2 the okay. entire time. Yeah. So then um, how was that for you as somebody that hadn't been part of team sports and all that? Did you feel like, A, you were fitting in? You were like, hey, I know my role. I know my niche. I'm finding out who I am. I'm integrating well with the team. Mm-hmm. And did you find that it was, it was, you were kind of cinching up and tightening up all the vulnerabilities you'd had, say, in high school? So your deficiencies in high school and things like that, where it was like, well, I'm good at this, but I'm not great at that. Did you find that like, Hey, I'm becoming a pretty well-rounded person. I'm, I'm really, I'm learning my weaknesses. I'm working on them. I'm getting better. Just what was the experience in that way for you on the team? So that's actually a great question. And no, I actually had a lot of problems on it. Um, I was always very, very good technically and, and, and performance wise and capabilities wise and all that kind of stuff. But in a lot of ways, socially, I was still that outcast from high school. Yeah. And 
the teams are, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but the teams are very cliquish. Yeah. You know, you have the dudes that you, I mean, yeah, you're all there as a team and everything like that, but you have your guys that you like kind of really click with. And then you have the guys that you work with. Right. And uh, you have the guys that are your, you have the guys that are your brothers. And then you have the guys that are your bros, you know, like kind of a deal. And I kind of had a hard time finding my click. And the couple team guys that I went through training with that I was like incredibly close to, they went to other teams. Yeah. Yeah. So even though I was roommates with one of them, like we owned a house together, we, he was at team 10 and I was at SDB too. Yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah. we would, you know, all the time. So yeah, I actually had a lot of challenges in the teams, you know, believe it or not, that aspect of myself that goth kid looking for a place to exist only really started to die away after I started acting. I could see that. Yeah, that makes sense. And and it resonated everywhere into my life. Like once I started not to change the subject there, but once on that note, once I started really becoming involved in theater and once I opened my own production company and started becoming very involved in everything, that was the first time I was actually able to grow and attract around myself a group of individuals from all walks of life. Yeah. And no longer did I have that outcast sort of a mentality, you know, like now all of a sudden I was actually the linchpin in the whole unit, you know, and everything else. And it was like, I wasn't the one that was looking to fit in. I was the one that others were looking to fit in with. It was a very interesting kind of an ideology. Um, But to answer your question, yeah, that actually that challenge persisted throughout the teams, you know, it was, it was a big thing. Yeah, that is a big thing. Um, and I know, yeah, soft is, is, is incredibly clickish. Um, that, that resonates. How many deployments did you do while you were uh, on the team? I did two combat deployments, you know, okay. and, then, yeah. uh, and then I did a slew of other ones that were like, I went to Jordan at one point in time, you right. know, and did a bunch right. of stuff, but it wasn't a combat, but I actually did two of them. Uh, downrange to straight up combat. And I, and I think I've got probably like, like 56 to 60 live combat opera, like mission, mission, yeah. like gunfight missions that, right. that I was on. Um, so by, by and large, I mean, nothing compared to what a lot of the other seals have or whatever the case is, but not a small amount. You know? Well, no, I'm, I'm kind of asking just because um, now, with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, mm-hmm. how much did that form you to who you are? How much of a shift was it? So obviously becoming a SEAL is a big deal, but then going to live combat and seeing mm-hmm. yourself under that stress test kind of can make you or break you in a different way. How, how have you looking back now, how much was that a, a formative event for you? How much were, do those deployments matter? Dude, Chris, you're in like, so you've got such great questions, man. Oh, um, <laughs> I got sure. an easy subject to ask. So it's all right. Yeah. It's a dude. It's so good. Thank you. Um, so in short, a thousand percent. And I think the one, one of the biggest things, and I try to preach this to people all the time. And it's if you uh, indulge me for just a second on this, it's such a good question. Um, what I believe it's given me, um, I, I believe that as a human being, it takes all aspects of ourselves to be the most well-rounded human being. We have to love, we have to hate, we have to do this, we have to do that. We have to have all of this. A lot of times you can only appreciate love once you've hated. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you can only appreciate safety once you've truly been in danger. 
you know, it's like, and, and, and unfortunately, I feel like there's a vast majority, maybe fortunately, unfortunately, there's a great amount of the human population, especially here in the United States, that doesn't get that breath. They've had one aspect for most of their time that what I would sometimes speak to individuals like that, which I know a bunch of them, they would sit there and go, why would I ever want that other part? Blah, 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 blah. That sounds terrible. I like, I don't need that. I can imagine. I'm like, you can't. Yeah. Actually, you really can't truly, you may be able to empathize, but you can't really imagine. And I've been very, I count myself very, I mean this, I count myself very fortunate that I've actually had all of those aspects. And it gives me true, I feel like what it actually gives me is not only a humanistic experience all the way around, but it also gives me, um, I'm, I'm missing the word for a second. Um, yeah, but um, it gives me, it gives, it gives me a sense of size, right? Mm. And again, to go back to one of my teachers, um, the same guy who told me to get on the stage, I'm sitting there so obsessed he, because he was great. Like this guy's incredible, incredible talent. And he had, he was like one of the perfect acting teachers for me because he kind of knew what I was going through. He came from a military family. And even though he was an incredible, incredible, he had never been military, but he loves the military, but he was there and he's teaching at this incredibly prestigious school and he's the headmaster and he's sitting there and he goes, and I'm going out there one time and he literally stops me during doing a scene one time. And he goes, Dave, bro, relax. And I'm like, but I'm trying this. And he goes, dude, you're not a seal anymore. No one's going to die. The worst thing that can possibly happen when you're out on stage there is I say, Dave, go back and do it again. No one dies. No one gets hurt. The world peace, you're acting, dude. It's fine. Yeah. You don't need to worry about it. And that was incredible because it literally put the perspective. Because now, as I go through life, I'll be on a movie set and something will happen or a theater set and something will happen or this, that, or the other thing. And like, I'll watch people oftentimes freak out and I'll just be like, hmm, well, we take the next step. People go, how are you so calm? I'm like, cause no one's dying. Right. It's just money. It's just money or it's just a little bit of time or it's just this, no one lost their life. The world peace is not on like no country. Nobody's getting taken over. Like it's a, we're making a fucking movie. Okay. So you have the freedom to fail. Yeah, because you have perspective. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? I think yeah. oftentimes, you know, I think, I think, I, I think that there's a lot of freedom in, in 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 understanding that whatever you're doing in the moment isn't the most important thing in the world. You know, like it just isn't. And and we as human beings are oftentimes we we love our suffering, right? And we love our stakes and, and, and we need that affirmation where you know somebody will sit there and they'll come back from uh, you know, they'll be working at Starbucks or something, and they'll have a meltdown. They're like, Oh, I screwed up three coffees today, and this customer yelled at me, and my boss threatened to fire me, and blah blah oh my god, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not challenging that it's not that it's not a lot for them, but that's because that's what they know. That's their perception and their perspective. And by my time of being a SEAL and actually going to combat so much and seeing this extremity of humanity by having people literally try to kill me and try to kill my brothers and, and, and being engaged in this combat, it's given me a very real sense 
of the gravity of the world and what shit just doesn't fucking matter, you know, and what stuff you can just take a wrap off. And the bottom line is I could be on a movie set doing a huge scene with a big actor or something like that. And I know that the worst thing is ever going to happen is they're going to fire me. It's okay. So probably not, but like, no, no, that, no, no, yeah. no, I know. <laughs> no, I get you. So I, I want to throw this out here as not a counterfactual, but I just want to bounce this off you. It totally answered it. It, it not only answered it, it it's prompting a, a follow-up. Um, but I'm, I'm going to set some context here. Um, do you know Sterling Hayden? Do you know, do you know who he was? He's one of those, I, I'm familiar with the name, but not his work. So he, he was one of those like classic film noir actors in the 50s, um, 40s, 50s. And then he, was, he played the cop in The Godfather that punches Al Pacino and, right. and you know, all that. Anyway, so he was um, one of the original OSS guys in World War II while he was a contract actor for whoever it was. I don't remember which studio he worked for, but um, he was he was actually in Stanley Kubrick's debut film, The Killing. He starred mm. in it, um, just as, as, as a by-the-by. Um, but he was an OSS uh, officer. He fought with the, with the communists, with Tito, uh, against the Nazis in Yugoslavia. So he went after German U-boats. He did all this high-speed stuff, uh, and he was a big strapping dude. And... He did this series of interviews that are on YouTube with Tom Snyder in the 70s where he is just out of his mind. He's wearing this purple bandana. He's got the, this long beard, like you know, like an Afghan beard before we knew what Afghan beards would look like. Right. And, and, he's, just, um, and he's just in it. And he's, like on a, he's just on a next level kind of like trippy dude talking about all of his regrets, his whole life and all this. And he says, um, what really pains him, he's like, you know, I've done now 30, 40 years as an actor. And he's like, you know, I've fought Nazis hand to hand. I've taken on U-boats. I've done all this stuff. And the scariest moment to me is the close-up. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it completely hamstrung my acting career because yeah. I could never, you put the camera right in my face and I freeze. And he's like, it always made me wooden. All my performances were wooden, except in 1972 when Robert Altman cast him in The Long Goodbye, which was kind of this, if you've ever seen it, I, I love the movie. It's just a trippy movie, but it's kind of like Big Lebowski before Big Lebowski. It's kind of like this Raymond Chandler-like mystery, but done with this counterculture protagonist instead of a, a detective. Yeah. And um, Sterling Hayden plays this Hemingway-like character. He's supposed to be this writer who's living off on the beach. And Altman, because of how Altman shot, kept the cameras 50, 60, 70 feet away and just mm-hmm. zoomed in. And Sterling Hayden gives the performance of his life. Because the camera wasn't shoved in his face. And all of a sudden you're like, and I'd seen a lot of his movies. And I was like, holy shit, this isn't even the same guy. Like yeah. his amazing talent. But he just felt so hamstrung because he couldn't cope with the close-up. So I'm throwing that out there just because everything you said makes 100% sense. And my good friend, Charlie Faint, who's on the vet rep board and it owns Havoc Journal, he talks about that all the time. How he can't even get road rage because he's like, yeah, nobody's going to die today and all that. But yet, they're on the flip side of it, there's that sense that kind of our original point about the actor's necessary ego, mm-hmm. um, if, you don't, if you don't have that sense of aggression and overcoming that camera being in your face and it kicks your ass, yeah. there's some, you leave, you're leaving something on the table. Some part of yourself is unrequited now yeah. because you couldn't fully actualize it. And it's weird because you feel... It feels strange to even say that that's a problem. 
I mean, that's not even the coffee at Starbucks. That's not even a customer yelling at you at Starbucks. That's so insignificant. Yet, holy shit, it just breaks your heart, and you feel this unrequited, you know, uh, sense kind of almost like you did uh, buds when you when you failed out and like hey, they they owe me one I got to go back and get that there's a sense of ah, and Sterling Hayden you see it and is the way he talked just I got to go back and get this career I lost this career because I couldn't fucking deal with a goddamn close up and it's so aggravating that he just wants to go back and tackle it anyway I'm throwing that out there as grist for the mill um, what do you think I, what, I, what's your I, reaction to that I agree I totally agree I, I totally understand where where uh, you know he was he, he's coming from on that it's like because that's the thing it's like as humans, we're so apt at forgetting everything. We 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 can so get tunnel visioned on what's going on right now that we forget how far we've come. Mm. And so often we can completely we'll get focused on one thing, a fucking close-up, and how insignificant it really is. Right. But in that moment, it's everything, and it's so easy to get so hamstrung and focused on that that you forget. How many trillion bigger things that you have overcome in your life, and you're like, fuck this little piece of shit, Anne Hill. Yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to do that and to keep that perspective because when you're in it and nothing's more important and you're hamstrung and you're scared and it, it seems like the whole world's riding on it, it's very hard to still get that separation and say, mm, I've dealt with much bigger things than this. Like this is not that big of a deal. And that's one of the things I'm not saying I do it perfectly by any means, but I think I consider it an advantage of me because I have that reference point. So if I'm aware enough and if I have the center of mind to go, huh, wait a minute, let me take a step back and think about that. I know what's happening here. Nope. I've overcome so much more than this. And then it gives me the freedom on that close up to say, no, I've been here. I've done this. It's fine. Whereas a lot of people, and I'm not trash talking people, it's just when, when we were talking about what the, what yeah. the advantage was. A lot of people have never been to that much worse place. Yeah. So they don't yeah. have a point of reference. To them, this is the end. This is their battle when their life is on the line. And they have never been in a situation that was much more grievous than this to have that ability to literally take a deep breath and go, nope, this is not it. It yeah. feels like it's it. Right. That's actually not true, you know, because, it, you know, and I have been gifted to have had that experience. So if I have the self-awareness, I could take the deep breath, step back, and I actually have the experience of the repertoire to draw from, to, to give myself the counterbalance, the sense of perspective, right? hundred percent. Yep. That a lot of people don't have. Absolutely. Um, I just got to remember to use this. <laughs> no, well, it's interesting. And I was actually wondering, I, I, and it, I don't think either of us can answer this, or at least I can't. Um, I, I, I wonder if that stays as strong the further and further away from those events that you get, where you start to lose that perspective, where you start to go, you know, yeah, that's who I was back then. And I'm, I'm, you know, I, it's funny, but we, we haven't had a lot of combat veterans become actors, certainly not recently. So the first examples that come to my mind are like politicians. Like I always think of Charlie Rangel, the famous Harlem Democrat who was uh, fought in Korea and was on top of a hill and like everybody i think got wiped out except for him and he made it and then ended up going on to be this incredibly famous and influential politician and he always said well ever since then i've never had a bad day and this is a guy that got dragged into multiple court cases had there was like bribery and stuff like that and charges thrown at him he's like well it's it's not the hill in korea and i always wondered you know can you really uh, do you really still think that 
40, 50 years after the fact? Is that still really, really looming that large? And I guess it kind of depends how significant those emotional events were that you're trying to pinpoint and trying to hold on to. But yeah, I don't know. And I, and I think that, it, yes, I agree with you. And I would also say that it depends on you and how much introspection that you do. Yeah. Like how much do you actively keep those alive in your brain? Not from a dwelling standpoint, but do you constantly, one of the things that I like to do, and I found it as a good self-help practice is that I practice gratitude all the time. I have a gratitude journal. I write down. And so at the end of every day, I do, you know, and, and I try to, at the end of every single day, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to be better and better and more religious about it. But the last couple hours of every, of my day, every day, I, I always take to myself to unwind. I don't talk to anybody. I shut my phone off and I'll sit for like three or four hours at the end of my day and I'll read and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, you know, like whatever it is, I don't watch TV. I don't do shit. I just sit by myself and I read and I write and I reflect. And one of the things I'm coming into practice now is I will write my vision of what I want, my affirmations, right? I will write my vision of what my manifestations, where my life is going. And as a part of that, I will challenge every single thing. When I sit there and I say, I want this, I'll go, why? Is this because I'm fearing a lack or is it because I feel like I need this to impress somebody or like what, like I'll question everything. I'll say, is this truly Dave's desire or is this Dave's manifested desire because of feeling of a lack or like of making my parent, you know what I mean? Interesting. I'll call all of that into question. If it's truly mine, then great. But I make sure to question that before I write it down. And then the next thing and the last thing I always do is I say, thank you. And I'll go through absolutely every single part of my day from the time I woke up all the way to, and I will literally step up and I'll say, I'm so fucking grateful that I woke up living with an incredible close friend as a roommate, and I'm incredibly healthy. And I have an amazing job that allows me the freedom to pursue my work. And I have so, and I'll just go down the list of all the things. So even if I had a really shitty fucking day, you know, I got caught in traffic, I got a speeding ticket, I lost the movie role, I lost this, I lost that. I don't even worry about that because I sit there and say, how great is my life that those were the big problems in my fucking world? You know, that I lost a movie role. Totally. Who gives a shit? How totally. lucky am I that I got put up for the role? Totally. Do you know what I mean? I try to reframe it in that. That that's a great way of clinging on to perspective, day yeah. in day out. That that's I, I love it. I, I do something very similar that I won't bore everybody with, but yeah, that I I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really strong way of approaching each day and making sure that it's framed correctly in your mind. Yeah, I, I think that's I think it's incredibly powerful. I don't feel like I'm doing this shift enough uh, due diligence and giving it enough attention. So I'm going to pause to make sure I really hammer this, but I want to make sure we capture your transition from seal to actor correctly and frame it correctly. So this is what I know. And and then I'll ask you just to dive in. So I know that you got out of the teams, you started to work in corporate America Mm -hmm. and then shifted to becoming a stage actor through local acting classes in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Yeah. What's the backstory behind that? How much would, would, did acting find you or had you been looking for acting and for a reason to explore yourself as an artist, as an actor this whole time? 
So uh, uh, without getting into the crazy long story on it, uh, I think it was both actually. Um, so I got out, I got into corporate America. Like I was telling you, you know, I got to that point where honestly, when I got out of the teams, um, I had no fucking clue what I was going to do. Hmm. And for the first time in a long time, I felt kind of adrift, you know, yeah. there was a lack, there was, there was a place in my life. Cause when I was a seal, because before I came a seal, like my goal was very clear. I wanted to be a fucking seal, right? Like this is where my life needed to go. Right. But I didn't leave the teams because I had another pursuit that I wanted to take. I left the teams because it was no longer my pursuit, but I didn't know what my new pursuit was. Right. So there was about nine months or so that I was adrift and I was working for corporate America and that reaffirmed that corporate America was not for Dave. Uh, and you was, know, it, was well, this, was this leveraging your time as a seal or were yeah. you going into a different, okay. All right. No, I got, I got brought onto a big company, a big fortune 500 company because I was a seal and they brought me right. on and to do all this stuff. And I, and I just, gotcha. I just didn't like it at all. Right. Yeah. So I will always remember this. So while I was a seal, um, part of what when we talked about the cultural differences, right. Um, so most of the guys, you know, are, are very big into partying and, you know, and doing the thing and just kind of living that, that, you know, that freaking lifestyle. Right. right. I never really was. And that was part of what a little bit of my strife was, you know I mean? I was never a big partier. I've never liked going to bars personally. Um, you know, more power to the people that do It's just never my thing. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times, and I was always like the kind of quiet dude, you know, that would kind of do his thing. And so I would find myself more often than not when we got done working, going off by myself or, or reading a book or watching TV shows or movies. And I was always bring my computer with me and like watch all my, you know, watch movies or do this, that, or the other thing. Um, and that was how I spent a lot of my time, especially on deployment. I would watch my favorite TV shows and I would watch this and I would watch that, right? Read books, all that shit. Well, I get out, I'm working for this corporate America and it was July 17th of 2010. Um, been on the teams for just about a year because uh, I got out in September of 2009, I believe. And August or September. So I've been out for almost a year. I was down in Tampa, Florida at a, at a sales convention and I was just fucking hitting it. And I was sitting in the hotel room and I was watching my, at the time, my favorite TV show. And I was waiting to go to a bunch of, I had a, a convention, a bunch of meetings this afternoon, right? Okay. And I remember I was very down and I was sitting there because like I said, I felt like that I was cast adrift. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And I'm watching a TV show and I was always captivated. See, here's the thing. I was never watch actors because they were famous or because they were sexy or whatever the case is. I was fascinated by the humanity and the story that was being told for me. And there was a point where I'm sitting there watching this TV show and I'm, I'm just appreciating the acting. I'm appreciating this. and I'm appreciating that. And then literally like a fucking, you ever have one of those epiphanies that hit you so hard. It's just like so obvious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in our lives, a lightning bolt hit me in the side of the fucking head and said, why don't I start acting? Wow. And I literally, I was like, that was what I really loved about doing the, the like the level two, level three, like all that other kind of stuff, that sort of a work of creating and the, and the mixing with the psychology of understanding how to develop yeah. persona, all of this stuff. It brought so many passions together. And I literally got hit in the head and I got, it's the fucking most obvious answer in the world. Obviously, that's what I should be doing. I should be acting. 
And so I blew off all my meetings. I said I got sick or some bullshit and ordered a bunch of pizza and a bunch of beer. And I stayed in my hotel room for the rest of the night. And, and I just researched how do people become actors? How do you train for acting? How do you do this? How do you do Like I researched right. everything, right? Right. The next day I started making phone calls and I looked into acting schools. And I looked into agents and shit like that. So the very first person I called was a course of agent because I didn't know shit. Right. <laughs> so I call an agent. I'm like, Hey, I want to be an actor. They're like, that's great. <laughs> You know? And I'm like, good talk. <laughs> you know, because like, I don't know what I don't even know. Right? Of course, of course, yeah. And so, it's not like any other job for those that don't know. I mean, it's not like it, it's not like boy, he's a go getter. He's calling an agent on day one. Like, no, no, no. That's like that's not how yeah, it works. That's like yeah. yeah people are yeah. like, who the fuck are you, and why are you calling me? Right, right, right. So, so it's kind of funny. So, so I, uh, so I do that. And then I call around to a bunch of, uh, so I called all the colleges cause I figured out, I was like, okay, there's so many scams and everything like that. So what I actually did is I looked up all the colleges in the area. I was living in Virginia beach. So I called like ODU and Regent university and all these other kinds of things. I called all their theater departments. And I said, if there was a school outside in town, a civilian, like a, like a, a normal acting school, that's not affiliated with a, with a school, with a college, mm-hmm. who would you recommend? And all the theater departments came back with the same person. They're like, you should take classes with this person. If you're not in college for it, this is the one guy that you want to train with. So I was like, okay, great. So that's kind of how I vetted it. You know, I was like, and what mm-hmm. agent would you guys want? They're like, there's like two reputable agents in the area. You should be with one of these two people. Wow. And you should do this. So I use the college theater departments wow. to kind of do that. Really smart. Yeah. I thought it was pretty clever. Yeah, that is. Um, that is clever. So I reached out to the acting school, a gentleman named Keith at the actor's place. Uh, Keith Flippin, uh, still good friend of mine to this day. And so he's like, yeah, man, you know, like, uh, you know, like he's, he's still, he's very, because I was just so aggressive. Right. So he's like, well, we can, we can talk in the next coming, you know, whatever the case is. I'm like, okay, very brief conversation. So then literally I leave, I leave Tampa. Like the day after that, I flew back to Virginia beach soon as I get to the fucking airport, I land back down, I jump in my car and I leave from the airport. I don't go home. I go to the school and I drive straight to the school. Cause I'm going to do like a flyby or something. And I happen to just like walk up to the school and I'm like there and it's there. And I like try it and the doors open. I'm like, oh, okay. So I just walk in <laughs> and I literally walk in and Keith's in there by himself and he's just setting up for class and doing whatever. And I'm like, Hey, you, we talked on the phone. He's like, Oh my God, who is this guy? <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> hey, like, that said he's running an acting class in virginia beach were right. you the first seal he'd ever he'd ever seen there were you the first seal that he'd ever come across i was i was not a comment i was probably pro- one of the few like that okay. had been there and i was certainly the one i mean he would agree now i'm by far the one that has like stayed you stayed, know sure. um he's had a couple other guys that have come in and out of class you know for a couple of weeks and they're like ah, it's not for me you know whatever um but so he and i sit down and we have a long conversation you know and he's very generous He's like, he's basically like, man, you don't know shit. <laughs> I'm like, nope, <laughs> sure don't. <laughs> and he's like, well, he's like, here's the thing. He's like, okay, so I'll, I'll put you into the next class, but it doesn't start for you know like a month now. Um, if you're really passionate about this, you should go to this. You should go buy these books. These are great books that you should read. Go get them at Barnes and Noble or something like that. Pick them up, and then you should really look into like. There's a lot of community theater that happens here. There's a lot of uh, you know student films and things like that. You should go like audition because you're going to see that you're going to learn a lot just from the auditioning process. And then when class comes around, you get into class. I'm like okay, great. So I go right to Barnes and Noble, drive home, buy all the books, drive home. Right. 
drive home, start reading the books, reading the books for a few days, you know, a few, you know, maybe a week or something like that, burn through them all. And cause I'm just drinking through the fire hose. Right. And then I start looking up auditions in the area. I'm like, Oh, okay. Blah, 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 blah. And I see that generic theater, a small community theater in the area was having an audition for a play called closer by Patrick Marber. Yeah, sure. Right. You know the play? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, made famous with like June, Jude Law and Natalie Portman and, uh, and um, you know, Clive Owen. And I can't, I can't remember the other yeah, I can't remember who the last one was, but yeah, no, I remember uh, when the movie came out. I just remember when it was on stage in New York. I mean, that was, that really took the theater world by storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I sign up for an audition. I'm like, I'm going to get shown the door here, but I'm going to do what I can do. Right. They send me the script. I read the script. I'm like, holy shit. Now, now it's important to know I've never read a play in my life. Closer was literally the very first play I ever fucking read. And I'm reading it. And in my mind, I'm thinking that all plays are Hamlet, you know, they're oh, all yeah. Shakespeare. And I'm reading, and these people are dropping F bombs and they're talking about fucking and all this. I'm like, whoa, plays are pretty right. cool. You know? Wait, wait, like, let me back up for a second. So, did you really think that, did you, were you really like thinking everything was going to be costume dramas and Shakespeare and yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah, I had no and idea. You, but you were down for it. That's yeah. what's amazing that you that that wasn't a barrier to entry for you. That was like, no. oh, okay. and why? Because you even if that was what it was, you were like, oh, it's the human condition, and I'm I'm, I'm down. On, for I'm the on fight. board. I'm on board. Yeah, wow. I was just I wow. was willing to. Yeah, but I had no. I had never seen a play. Um, I'd never read a play. Nothing. Wow. So all of a sudden, when I jumped on board to this, I was like, I was thinking. So when I read closer, I was like, what? This is a play too? You know, like I had no wow. idea. That they were, I, I thought they were all like, oh, excuse me. The only plays that I had ever read in the past were like in like Greek like tragedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, high school yeah. where we read yeah. Shakespeare in, in Greek tragedy. So that was my only experience yeah. with a play, right? Um, uh, nothing like closer or any contemporary. You know, I hadn't even read like Death of a Salesman or anything. And uh, and then so I go and I and I do what little work I could do on the script, you know, out of my little acting book. And I showed up and I auditioned uh, and they gave me the lead. <laughs> Very first time I booked the lead, and they booked me as Dan, which was Jude Law's character oh, in the movie. God, wow! And I'm like, what the hell? So we go, we open, we go all the way through. We're, we're performing, you know. Wait, about, you haven't taken an acting class yet, right? Never been in a single class. No. <laughs> um, so that was my introduction to acting was starting out on community theater, but then literally uh, I'm about a weekend or, you know, week into actually showing the play uh, we're open after the play, I get a knock on my dressing room. I'm like, okay. So I go on, I open the door and I'm like, Oh, and there's this Irish lass and she's there and she's all there and she's lovely and all this. And I'm like, hi, who are you? She's like, I'm Sylvia love. And I'm like, who are you? She's like, I'm the agent that you called. I'm like, Oh, yes, you remember a couple months ago. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah. She's like, oh, it turns out her assistant was active in the theater. Oh, of course. Came and saw the play, recommended that she come and see the play. She came, recognized my name from my obvious befuddlely when I called her right. like a moron, you know, months earlier. So you stood out. That's a good thing. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She remembered you. Yeah, that's, that's a good calling card. Yeah. She, she came back and signed me. And she was like, do you still want representation? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. She was like, awesome. Come and this is now. still before you've taken your first acting class. Yes. Okay. So right now there are actors all throughout New York City that are slitting their wrists hearing this story. But okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It was crazy. laughs> 
Um, well, yeah, you got representation I, out of it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a and, big step. And, and, yeah. And she was got me on a TV show immediately after I was on 700 Club, like a reenactment thing. And I started doing Virginia Beach has a lot of reenactment shows, you know, like okay. a lot yeah, of sure. ghost stories and FBI criminal pursuit and all this kind of shit. So I, so I did a bunch of those, a bunch of those. Um, so we did a bunch of that kind of stuff and I just kept doing theater. So that started like a next year. I just kind of like started doing, started getting done in the class and I was going to class and Keith, because he's very, very generous. Um, he would run two basic classes. He ran class. Well, excuse me. He ran class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of every week. Monday was the beginner class or excuse me, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, if I remember correctly. So Monday and Tuesday, he had two beginner classes that kind of overlapped. You know, he would start one like halfway through the next one. And it was a constant rotation. Okay. And then once you got done with that, you could go on to the advanced class. And then on Friday was like an improv class and a comedy class, right? And he had a rule that if you were enrolled in any of the classes as an active student, you could go to the other classes for free of anything that you had already done. And if you hadn't done oh. it yet, for example, if you were in the beginning yep. class, if you were at the beginning class, you could audit the more advanced beginning class and the advanced class and the improv class. But then once you became once you became a member of the advanced class, you could go back and participate in the beginning classes and gotcha. you could do all that. So immediately, as soon as I got into class, I started going every night and I would just sit there and just write and write and write like every night from seven to 10. When he had class, I was in class. Wow. Period. Wow. Um, and I did that for about a year. And then, uh, you know, bigger and bigger opportunities came around and so on and so forth. Um, and basically what, it, uh, yeah. And then I got picked up for a bigger theater and I got booked on, I met who the woman, Julie, who became my great mentor and friend, um, while I was working for an equity, uh, traveling theater group, um, doing death of a salesman and, uh, which there's a whole story about that. And then I got booked onto captain Phillips, the movie with Tom Hanks. And then I went to my first conservatory where I went to the Michael Howard conservatory in New York city and went there. And Which is where I went. Yeah, that's right. Did you go Michael Howard? I went to Michael. This was years ago. This was literally 20 years ago in my, in my oh. previous life. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was my, that was my acting school. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, okay. but, but years, years and years and years ago, you know, and look how it's paid off. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I learned a lot there. I learned a yeah. ton there. I, I really actually enjoyed it a lot, um, but I don't know what it was like at, at that point. I've lost touch with all that. So I, I don't know what it was like by the time you went there. How'd you like your time there? Uh, it was, it was exactly what I needed at the time. Right. Like it was uh, yeah. like, cause I was coming out of Virginia uh, where I was taking, and as much as, as great as Keith is, it's three hours a day, kind of like Groundhog's day, you know I mean? Sure. He's teaching the same stuff to sure. a new group of people. And these are people that honestly have no business being actors for the vast majority. And they don't want to be actors. They don't know what it is. They're, right. just, they're just, and that's great. So to step from that environment into Michael Howard of people who have made an active, they're like, I want to go to conservatory and I want to study for days and days and days and hours and hours and hours a day. And I want to make this a lifestyle. That was that next step. Yep. Right. Yep. And that's exactly what I needed at that point in time. Sure. Um, and then obviously after that, I, uh, I got seen by, um, do you know the original actor center, the studio of New York? Yeah, I do. I, I don't, a lot of the stuff 
at this point, uh, I'll be honest, just kind of blurs together because there's there's like the actor's place and then there's the actor's space and then there's the and it's like I, I one of those yeah so well, well, they all kind of blend but yeah in my mind yeah yeah the studio uh, the studio is a one year conservatory okay and it, and it pulls the faculty of uh, Juilliard Tisch Yale that's awesome. And, and, yep. and it basically it caters to those same people, like all those students that are like in that body pool of, of students. That's that's the studio of New York. And, it's and for, a the, for those that don't know, I mean, that's the troika of elite, right. you know, acting schools. So, yeah, that's right. Awesome. Yeah. And um, in and, and the studio pools from that has all the same faculty members that come to they, yeah. all the faculty members that teach at the studio, teach at those big conservatories. And then they come over here and then the studio recruits its student body from like the wait lists of those other schools or, or, you know, or whatever the case is, you know, and, and kind of pulls them in there. Um, which is how I ended up getting seen by Jade and went and auditioned for the studio, got into the studio, um, and went and, uh, and that was the one where I was sitting there with like seven other kids going, what the fuck am I doing here? These kids right. are good. Like right. they're really good, right. you know? Um, and, uh, and I went there, kept working, kept working, kept working. So I constantly was like, as my whole time of working had happened, I was going back and forth between stage and film, television, you know, all this other kind of stuff, and then go back to school for a while and then come back out and keep working and so on and so forth. Uh, and then I got uh, an opportunity to go as a member of the Prague Shakespeare Company. And so I went and traveled and lived in Prague and studied classical Shakespeare and, uh, and, and did that for a while. And where did you get cast out of? Did you get cast out of New York? They cast so, out of... So I, actually, I got cast out of L.A., Okay. Uh, oh, and, wow. and, and it was because um, they uh, they had had this idea, the Prague Shakespeare Company had had this idea where they wanted to bring a world company together. And what they wanted to do is invite like 10 master teachers of different acting disciplines, like an improv guy and a movement guy, this and a mm -hmm. classical person. They wanted to invite 10 classical teachers from around the world to come together. And then what they did was they asked all 10 of those teachers to recommend five students a piece that they wow. felt should be a member of the company. Like, and basically say, we, we're recruiting you because we know your work from wow. around the world. Yeah. So wow. tell us five students that you have that would be, that you think would, would, would be a part of this. And my teacher, Julie got recognized as one of the master teachers. So she went and taught and recommended me to be a part of the company. And what did you end up performing? What plays did you end up doing? Uh, we did. Uh, so we did a couple of them. We did. Um, uh, excuse me. Oh, I'm blanking for a second. Uh, uh, I put did, you on the spot. Enough. Yeah. No, I'm just like, I don't watch Shakespeare. So the main one that we did was actually, uh, we did an original, an original Shakespeare um, that was titled The Death of Kings. And what it was, was a, was a gentleman named Erwin Apple, who was a, uh, a teacher and everything like that. Um, and a director. He took all of Shakespeare's histories, all the Henrys and the Richard II, oh, okay. the third, all this other kind of stuff, and he can and he put them all together, and basically went through every single play and systematically put them the different scenes and acts into chronological order. Oh, interesting! Where oh, they were happening, huh. and then cut, and then cut it down into one like two hour production. So like you would see a scene from Richard II, and then you see one from Henry V, and then you would see one here and here and here to tell a total story. And a lot of the scenes were almost like kind of snippets or almost monologue kind of a perspective wow. to take you through this journey, what he called the death of Kings. Wow. And it was wow. all of Shakespeare's historical stuff. That's very cool. 
So in that, I played um, uh, I played the Earl of Suffolk, and I played Hotspur sure. uh, in, in in both in, in the plays. Um, and then at other points in time, I've played Iago, um, Petruchio. Um, you know, I've played a bunch of those ones as well, and some of the other Shakespeare's that you know. So- can we talk shop for a second? Because yeah. I, I want to kind of dive into to some of this. First, I want to back up to w- just because in, in case anybody thinks that we kind of glossed over the transition. Mm. When you first were on stage, your first performance in front of an audience, you've been yep. acting for 10 minutes. What was your feeling? <laughs> Nine and a half. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. I mean, what, what, how, what, was the, what was the impact on you? What was your takeaway? So it was two things. One is this was the most fucking scared and out of my element that I've ever been in my life. Mm. Number two was I should have been doing this all my life. Yeah. Yeah. I felt so at home and so terrified simultaneously that it was that, you know, like never have I ever felt so out of my element and so in love with it simultaneously. Sure. Sure. And it was a very intoxicating feeling. I remember, I actually remember that stepping out on stage at a live production one time, or actually even not even that, but during the rehearsal, like coming into the very first audition, like when I'm reading this sides and I've got no fucking clue. I've never acted yeah. ever. Yeah. Never, not a single time in my life have I ever read words off of a script. Cause obviously even when I was doing in the military, we weren't doing that. We were developing persona and doing that kind right, of, but like, right. Never had I ever taken words from a script, tried to imagine what that character was like, and then embody that, right? And then I come in for an audition and I'm like, what the fuck am I? I have no idea how to audition. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm like, do I just say the lines? What do I, I have no clue. Yeah. You know, and then when I got cast and then the rehearsal process starts, I'm like, Okay, so what do we do? Like, do we just run it a bunch of times? Like, I had no idea how a rehearsal goes. Right. Right. You know, like, and I remember that there was there was a funny part uh, because it was like a series of firsts, right? So I'm cast alongside, and obviously, for those that don't know, closer has two men and two women in it, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story of a dysfunctional relationships and love and and, and betrayal and and all this other kind of stuff and. Both of the men end up sleeping with both of the women throughout the play, and it goes back and forth and all over. It's just this love triangle, and like you know, the men fight and the women are fighting, and like it's just this thing, right? And I remember we're doing a scene, and I'm reading the scene, and the scene is one of the ones where Dan, my role, uh, kisses, um, and I can't remember the character's name, but it was the one played by Natalie Portman in the uh, in the movie, and it's the first time that these two characters kiss. And we're in the rehearsal process and I'm like reading the lines and I'm like, oh, blah, 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 blah. you know, and I'm just like saying the, uh-huh. the director's right there. And the actress who is fantastic, she's so lovely. And, you know, she's like been in the theater forever. Literally, she's like, blah, 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 blah. And we get to the part of the night. She goes, OK, give me your mouth. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what? <laughs> you know, like, shit just got real. Yeah. She just breaks yeah. the ice like that, you know, like no bullshit, no anything. I'm still reading the script. I'm like, hey, what smack? You know, and I'm like, she literally said the words, okay, give me your mouth. And just starts making out with me. And it's like this thing where I'm like, oh, that's how we go here. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's um, a good icebreaker. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but then so you go through that process. And then the very first opening night, I'm sitting in the wings and I'm so fucking nervous. And we had a big audience of like four people and 
Yeah, I remember stepping out on that stage and feeling everyone's eyes and like the hushed silence of the audience and like people watching and, you know, and just in there and you're like, these people are here to watch me. Like they have paid money to come and see this tonight. Who the fuck am I to think I have, who the fuck am I to believe that I have the right to step out on this stage? Don't they know I'm a fraud? You know? So besides the, well, I mean, to that point of the imposter syndrome, were you, when you were backstage, was there ever a conscious part of you that was like, I'm a fucking seal. Like, did you still identify as that? Because you had a job that's something you roll out of bed and you're conscious of that identity. Now you're being asked to set that aside and be this completely different (laughs) character. So was there a part of you that was like, that was struggling to find that? Or did you find it an easy thing to shuck? Chris, you, you ask the best questions, man. I really, I mean that seriously, dude. God, dude. You you, you lend yourself to them. No, it's an easy, it's an easy thing. Uh, I'm dead serious. These are such great questions. Uh, bottom line, that was actually one of my biggest struggles in my growth as an actor. Yeah. So yes, I came from the world and we talk about, um, we, we were hitting on it earlier on with the clickishness in this other kind of stuff for anyone who doesn't know what I'm about to say. It's just like, anytime anybody does anything, like we, we talk about it, um, Anytime in my experience that anybody hits something that's very well known or prestigious in life, whether it's the SEAL teams or it's Juilliard or it's, you know, uh, you've gone to Johns Hopkins Medical School or like you're in Mensa or any of these sorts of things. While it's incredibly cool, it's a lot of responsibility, it seems. And it can be very daunting and limiting to a lot of people because they feel like they have this massive monkey of expectation on them. And it goes around, you know, like, for example, I have a buddy of mine, a very close friend who went to MIT and he's in Mensa. Incredibly brilliant guy. He rarely says anything. And I sit there and I've asked him at one time because we're very close. I asked him, he goes, Dave, because I never want to be wrong. Because uh, if yeah. I am, I'll never live it down. Because he's so intimidated. And he's true. He's legitimate. He's a brilliant fucking guy. But everybody expects every word that comes out of his mouth to be the most brilliant, genius thing that they've ever heard in their lives. And so he feels like he can't say shit. Otherwise, he lets everyone down. Or he looks like a fraud. Or he looks like this. Or he looks like that. You know what I mean? I have other friends of mine who have gone to RADA or Juilliard and all this other kind of stuff. And and there's a lot of expectation. You know, like they come into a rehearsal or something. Everyone's like, I want to see what they do. They want to, they're waiting to see the brilliant choice, the incredible talent. And, and they're like, dude, it's intimidating. You know, like it's this thing. Cause I feel like I can't fail. I can't do my work because my work is based on failure. Like yeah. my work is yeah. based on, I have to be fearless in my failure. Right. We know that as actors, like, so all of a sudden you've gone to a place where people have such expectations of you that you're not allowed to fail anymore, which stops you from doing the work. Right. So as a seal, Yes. And it doesn't make it worse. I actually had a multitude of dudes from the community. Um, it made it worse, realistically. Um, because I would get comments all the time where they're like, bro, what the fuck are you doing out there? You look like a like a douche. You know what I mean? Because people, and this actually comes to it. And again, I'm not I'm in no way trying to badmouth. It's just no, no, true. no. I get it. Yeah. You have a lot of people, and especially I can only speak for the teams, um, but I know it's prevalent everywhere. You have people that 
they go to these sorts of programs or these units because it's a, it's a part of their growth. And you go have other people that go there because it's a part of their identity. They need it. They have to have it for themselves. And so when they do that, they have created this idealization, like as a seal, like what is a seal? Because they have personified this and they have become that as a way to tell themselves how to be or like with an expectation. So when they see anybody else who bears the same trident or the same, whatever is they that's behaving in a way that maybe they don't like, or they don't think is congruent with being a seal, all of a sudden it becomes a bastardized thing. Right. Yep. So in their mind, the only time a seal could ever become an actor is if you're playing a badass military dude, you're playing Jason Bourne. Right. Right. That's all you can ever play. If you're a former SEAL, your duty as a former SEAL, your duty is to uphold the image of the SEAL teams everywhere you fucking go. And I'm like, well, I do. I uphold it in my dedication and my work ethic and my honesty and my integrity and the way that I treat people and the, all these things. And I'm like, no, 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 but you can't go on stage and be some pussy, dude. Get right, beat right. up. Right. Like, I'm an actor. They're like, yeah, but that's, that's dude. You know what I mean? Like it becomes that because they have an outward personification of what the image of being a seal is and you have to be James Bond or you have to be Jason Bourne or you have to right. be a seal or a Delta dude and, and, and everything like that. And so the idea of doing Shakespeare is, is not cool. Like that's, 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 that's what nerds do in theater dudes. And that's not what you do as a former seal, man. I mean, like you can't do that crap. You just look like an idiot. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And so I was hyper aware of that, which really hurt my work. Did anybody actually come to see you in person? Did you ever yeah. look out and, and recognize people sitting out there? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I can't imagine how that would have yeah. felt. I bet that would bottle a lot up. Right, because all of a sudden you're just sitting there and I'm saying, these guys know me as a SEAL. Yeah, of course. And and now I'm supposed to be this character. And they're in this character that honestly, most SEALs would not respect that guy because they would see him being a bitch. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so all of a sudden they see me on stage acting like this kind of guy that they would just despise. And they're like, dude, yeah, you, you don't tell anyone you were a seal, right? You know what I mean? Like, and you're like, Oh shit. You know? So yes. So to answer your question, so then what I did, so there was a long period of time where it was that I was a seal yeah, trying to be an actor. Yep. Yep. And then for a very long period of time, I realized how bad that was damaging my work. So then I tried to distance myself as far as I possibly could for that. Yep. I would never do a military role. I would take every anti thing. I would never tell anyone that I was a team guy. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So I went the opposite way with it. Right. And I did a lot of growing like that, but then it was, it came to a point again, I'm so fortunate because the only reason I've gotten where I've gotten is because I've had the very good fortune to run across people who knew so much and were willing to help me. And I had the good sense to fucking listen to them and to, and to dedicate myself to what they were saying and to trust them. And so I had one of my teachers where I was telling them through that. And I literally asked him, I got picked up into this other acting class, you know, which is a, which is a well-known class. And I, and I asked him cause he knew the teacher knew. And I go, Hey man, if, if it's not too much trouble, can you please not tell anyone that I was a seal? Yeah. And he goes, sure, as you wish, but why? And I go, because I don't, we talked about the monkey, right? Yep. This, this gentleman went to Juilliard 
And he was like, I get it. He's like, I, I sometimes don't want to as a teacher to tell me when I went there because then they have the expectation of like, and all the stuff, you know, and then people, we talked about the expectation and he goes, but Dave, you do realize that that's hiding. And I'm like, what? He's like, I get it. But you do realize that what you're doing isn't genuine. And if you want your acting to be its best, you have to bear everything. And that's just a part of who you are. The trick is, is to own it and not need to present it. Because hiding it is the same thing as presenting it. Either way, it's it, your, your, your work is now becoming about you being a SEAL. Yeah. But hiding it or whether you're showing it, it's the same thing. It's the two different sides of the same thing. It's all about yeah, that. Totally. And, and if you want your work to be your best, you need to be the most comfortable with your whole self. And that includes just wearing everything and just walking into the room. It, does that make sense? You know, like it's such, it was such a that, journey. That makes total sense. And it, it actually makes me wonder now you're doing movies, TV and all that. And I promise we're going to get to the Manson brothers. But when we, when we talk about all that stuff, the culture on set I know is one where there is a bit of a hierarchy and there is ex- levels of expectation that are set to you. I guess it's a two part. I could see two, two potential issues. So I'm just going to throw them out there and you tell me what actually is an issue and what isn't one. How do other actors regard you? In other words, if they're looking at you and they go, Hey, I'm just playing this role but you're actually a seal. So I'm looking to you for not just subject matter expertise, but how you carry yourself, how you act, especially when you're not playing, when you're not the role, how you act, when you go get catering, how you act, you know, just in general, and then the stunt guys. So then you're looking at guys. And I, I know a lot of stunt guys that are, you know, former ex, ex military types and, and some of them ex soft types. Yeah. Um, what kind of reaction do you get from them? They go, hey, motherfucker, you should know this because you're a SEAL or, hey, I, I'm with you and I'm not, I don't have to be in front of the camera. I'm better because I'm behind. Like, what, what's the dynamic? What kind of feedback do you get? And what is that? What do you carry with you now dealing with that? Dude, again, these are like the best questions in the world. Um, bottom line, it's a smorgasbord. And it's all over the place. And I get it. And I have to realize that all of these different challenges are all about the people. They're not about me. That's one of the things I've actually come to come to understand. So I get, and I don't say any of this from an egotistical perspective. I literally get it from, this is just feedback that I've gotten like on, on your question. So I just preface it with that. Um, so I get the gamut of all the people that come around and they say they, so a lot of it is actually very frustrating at first. Um, I get comments all the time. People will see my work. Oftentimes people that I've known for a while, you know, but they've never seen my work and then they'll see my work and I get these comments and this is really frustrating. They'll come over and be like, Dave, you're fucking good. And I go, did you think I wasn't? And they go, yeah, I thought you would be awful. Yeah. And I go, why would you think that? And they're like, well, because you were a seal. Right. And I'm like, what does that have to do with it? They're like, yeah, I do. But I know other like soft guys or whatever that are actors and they're all atrocious, like in their experience, you know? Right. Right. And I'm like, so you just assumed that I was bad because of this. It, it It's it's actually very disheartening how many people are very surprised 
that that I've done as much work as I have. Right. Because they only make that assumption because of whatever. And, you know, another one that's actually, I get this all the time. And again, it's, 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 it's sad to me. Um, the amount of times that I've gone to like big, big works or big auditions, or like at some of these very big schools, you know, and I've worked with many graduates of these schools and the amount of times that I've gotten a comment or somebody has come over to me after we've done some work together or something, they go, dude, you fucking are, you're, you're weirding me out. And I go, why? What's wrong? And they go, okay, dude, this is weird. You're, you're like really good. But when I first met you, I looked at you and I thought, oh, look at the big roided out soft jock dude. I never expected you to be this good. And now all of a sudden I figured that you were just going to be this wooden, like stupid actor. And now all of a sudden you're here and I go, why do you think I don't have a heart? Right. And they're like, no. Like, so you literally just looked that I'm a big dude and you heard that I was a seal and I'm a big intimidating, you know, built guy. And you just automatically assumed that I was going to be an atrocious narcissistic actor. And they're like, well, yeah, I get that so much from this. And it's really sad, you know, to me where I'm just like, dude, why, why would you think that about me? Like, you don't even know me. Yeah. You know, and I get that all the time. And then I get all the people that, that so I guess it, it's the assumptions, right? But I'm going to get right. to the good side of right. it here a little bit, right. but because there is a lot of great stuff, but I get sure. to the, the assumptions, right? People hear that I'm, a, that literally they hear that I'm in the industry and they all go, oh, oh, so what kind of stunts do you do? Uh, yeah. Not a stunt guy. They're like, right. what do you mean you're not a stunt? You just said you're in the industry. I was like, yeah, I'm an actor. They're like, right. yeah, you're an actor. You do stunts. I'm like, no, dude, I'm a fucking actor. Yeah, and like everybody won't believe it. They just right. assume that I'm a stunt guy. Or when they do accept that I'm an actor, they're oh, okay. So what I mean, so I mean, obviously you just do military stuff and cops. I'm like, no, dude. And they're like, well, what was the last thing? I was like, well, the last big role I played was a sociopathic priest at a at a for a Lionsgate movie. They're like, what? Yeah. They're like, but I mean, you normally do military stuff. I'm like, no, I do not <laughs> normally do military stuff. Like nobody gets it. Um, but so that that's very frustrating. Sure. When I have those kind of people, because I, because I've worked so fucking hard, you know, all the time. And then to have people that automatically put me in a box of assumption, it, it just, because of that, you know, it was really frustrating, you know, and, and hurts frankly. Um, and, and before we get to the good, the, the flip side of that coin, can I just ask, how much do you feel pressure to live up or live down to people's expectations? So, and I, I, what I mean by that is like, do you feel any pressure? Like if tactics or if weapons or weapon systems or anything like that have changed since you've been out and suddenly they're talking about it on set and they look to you and like in this right, Dave, and you're like, Oh, that's new. That's different or something like that. But you feel a pressure to be on top of that and to have all the seal knowledge of everything that you're supposed to know, even though it's like, dude, I've been out for, a bunch of years and I'm an actor so Not for 10 years. Yeah. And like, like, yeah, yeah you know, and, and so if people are looking to you for that stuff, do you feel that pressure or is that something that just is kind of done now? So, so it's actually a mix. It's not as bad. Yes, but it's not as bad as what it is because honestly, uh, most movie sets are so far behind. 
what's oh. actually going on there. And most of the time when people ask me questions, it's still stuff that's like, I'm like, no, dude, you don't do that. But, you know, yeah, or like yeah, whatever yeah. the case is, typically some of the things that end up running um, where I do end up in those sorts of situations where I'm like, actually, I don't know what the latest and greatest is. Let me look at, let me ask mm-hmm. a guy mm-hmm. and I'll get you an answer is typically in the writer situation where I'll have friends that are writers or something like that, that are developing a script. And then they'll come back to me and be like, Hey Dave, so we're writing this scene. It's taking place modern day. It's over there. Like what's the term that they would use nowadays or, you know, and something. And I'm like, honestly, dude, some of my info is 10 years old. It's constantly updated thing. Let me ask one of my boys. That's that's active duty right now. You know, and I'll, and I'll get you an answer. But realistically, most stuff that happens on movie sets is so, Right. You know, not, it's not the most advanced bullshit that's actually right, there. Right, so right, it's like, right. um, but that is, but, but that is a thing, you know, and actually it's, it's kind of weird too, where I, I have to be very careful on a set. Like, for example, I was on a movie and because thank God this, this tragedy actually happened. So, um, so I won't go into details on it, but so I was, I was filming on a movie last year and we had weapons on set. But no live rounds. Nothing happened. Everything was fine. Right, right. But we did have a couple scenes where there were live weapons on set. Or, or excuse me, there were weapons on set. Excuse me. Not live, but right. weapons. Right. And uh, so the weapons master comes out there every day. And at the beginning of the day, she gives her safety brief about everything. Right. I bring this up because after the event that happened on Rust, I got so many phone calls from people, both in and out of the industry asking for my perception on yeah, that thing. And sure. I gave him, I gave him my experience with movies on set and how I felt that that thing happened, could have happened. You know, I obviously had nothing to do with the movie. I was there, anything like that, but like, just from my experience and knowing how movie sets run, I'm like, I could totally see how it happens. Um, tragically. But so I'm on this movie and I'm, I'm an actor. That's it. I was one of the leads. And after about three days of these safety briefs, the director, who was a buddy of mine, comes over to me and is like, hey, Dave, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, sure. What's up, dude? And he pulls me in the next room. And he goes, hey, I've only been shooting a few times in my life and different things like that. But the, 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 the armorer comes out and she's putting out this thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. And he goes, is what she's saying, is, is it accurate? I go, no, she's full of shit. And that was the truth. And he goes, really? I goes, yeah, dude, that woman has no idea what the fuck she's talking about. Wow. What was she full of shit on? What was she? Was she just like on? her handling tactics on the, the uh, weapon? Like while she was literally doing the safety brief, she's sweeping the whole crowd with the gun. God damn! You know, like her hand, her muzzle discipline of the weapon that she's supposed to be the fucking. She's the armor. Yeah, and she's literally giving a safety brief and pointing the gun at everybody while she's Jesus doing. Jesus Christ! Oh yeah, it was that bad? Wow. And I'm sitting there, I go, dude. She has no idea what the fuck she's talking about. None. I doubt she's ever actually handled a gun. She has no clue. And most of what she's saying is completely fucking wrong. And the way that she's handling the gun, pointing it is just like atrocious. And he goes, why didn't you say anything? I was like, because I'm an actor, dude. And you know me. Like, I knew that if you had a question, you would come and ask me. So I think that, and this is whether it's right or wrong, but this is one of those things that ends up happening. A lot of military guys, and especially soft guys, get onto movie sets and they don't stay in their swim lane. Right. They all of a sudden feel like, oh, because I have this experience, I need to start telling the fight choreographer how a real fight would go. Sure. Or I need to start telling the weapons guy how we're going to handle guns and all this other kind of stuff. It's like, dude, if somebody wants your fucking opinion, they'll ask you for it, you know? And that's, and if you weren't hired into that capacity, 
give the respect to the person that was. And even if they're, you know what I mean? Like I try to live by that. Sure. However, but that's a life or death aspect of the job though. If she's fucking up the, the weapons though, right. no? Right. It, yeah. A hundred percent. Maybe I should have said something. I probably should have told the director like offline, you know, I mean, in, in reality, I did not, but I probably should have. Um, however, what I have had was situations like that, where literally after that, the director came and asked me because he lost all confidence justifiably in the girl yeah. that was the armor master. And he goes, no, 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 no. Okay. Here's the deal. Dude, no way. We're not going to have this on set. Dave, will you, will you, I know you're not the armor master, but will, will you give the safety brief on the gun tomorrow and show everybody how to use it and how to do be proper and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, isn't that going to piss off your armor master? Yeah. Cause that's yeah. her job. He goes, I don't give a shit. I was like, you're the director, dude. Like, if you want me to do that, I will do that. But I'm not trying to create any problems on your set. You know, right, like, right. You know, I am here to support this movie in any way I possibly can and just do what the fuck I'm told to do. But you're the director and you're the producer. And if you guys want me to do it and to talk to your armor master and get her up, to speed, then I will do that for your guys and your safety and everything like that. So he ended up actually having me go check all the guns and walk through her with all the kind wow. of stuff offline and then do the safety brief, you know, but it, like, there was a lot of animosity then. Yeah, like, of course. She, she was pissed at me. I bet know? she was. Like, yeah. Not my fault. Like you right. did it. You yeah. know, like I wasn't telling, I didn't come out here diamond you out, but it's yeah. just like, you should have been on top of the shit. It's your job. Um, So there is a bit of that, you know, but that's also hard for you now to get out of that. Cause now you have this left brain thing that you're trying to do when you're trying to be the actor and be focused on that. And it's like, now you're I'm off. suddenly in charge of everyone's safety here too. Cause if I fuck this up, you know, that that's a tough spot to be in. And, and we know, and I mean, that's, that's part of the thing, right? I have to sit there and for my work, I need to be in that right brain. Right. right. And I need to try to stay in that right brain behavior as much as I possibly can. And when somebody comes over and starts asking me these left brain, you know, cause I'm sitting there bottom line going, dude, I'm, I'm playing this. This guy is not a seal. Right. This right. I would not know these sorts of fucking things that I'm talking right. about right here. Right. So for me to go switching back and forth between like being a tactical expert and then trying to be in character of this character who has no idea about a tactic in their fucking life is a very difficult transition creatively. And the, and the fact that it's it's a life or death aspect of right. the film. I mean, that's like trying to JMPI somebody while you're also trying to do Othello over here. It's like, whoa, dude, we'll pick a lane. What, what are we doing? Because exactly. it's tough to do both those at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And I find yeah. that a lot of times when I get pulled onto a movie set, that's what's expected of me when people do ask those sorts wow. of things. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why as a producer, when I step onto there, yes, I'm the producer, I'm one of the producers on the movie and so on and so forth. But I make it very clear of my requests with the rest of the production team. I'm like, Hey guys, unless you fucking need me to make a decision, you got it. Like if I'm filming yep. today, yep. I'm, I'm an actor. Like I am out of the way. I am doing this and you guys got the ball unless there's an absolute thing that I need to be brought in on. Yeah. I'm an actor. When I am acting, I am acting, you know, and I would prefer not to do anything else other than act. If I'm not working on it, if I'm not acting on a particular day, all about it. I'll come here. I'll be a producer. I'll, I'll, I'll check the armor stuff. I'll help with the weapons coordination, all that kind of shit. But on a day where I need to be in my creative space, I want to stay away from any decision-making outside of character choices, you know, and stuff like I want to stay in that space as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why I hire, like, I've gotten people have asked me before. They're like, dude, you're one of the producers on the movie. Why would you hire a weapons master? You could just do it. I'm like, because I'm a fucking actor on the movie. Like, I don't, I, that's somebody, I don't, I don't have time to worry about their job. Like okay. I hire somebody 
that I know is capable. And then I let them do it. Right. Right. I want to ask you about Max Martini. When did you meet him? Uh, Captain Phillips. Oh, that's when you met him. Okay. And that was like the meeting of Smith and Wesson. Yeah. That was like the meeting of Smith and Wesson, right? You guys became buddies after that. Dude. So, so for anyone who doesn't know Max Martini, um, I hope most of you guys probably do. He's, he's like the quintessential military actor out there. What you see of him on film is actually what you get. This guy is no kidding. I could say with every ounce of sincerity, he's one of the most humble, loving, big hearted, authentic guys you'll ever meet. Literally give you the shirt off his back. He's so kind and very genuine and, and everything else. And like, you know, I've, I've had people have asked me and I feel so bad because all he does is give, and especially he gives to military and first responders. And I could go on for days of telling you stories of when Max and I hang out all the time. We're very close friends. Every single time that I'm with him and we're hanging out somewhere, he's never too busy to talk to somebody. Anytime somebody comes up and wants to talk to him about a movie or something, he's the most generous. It's not narcissistic. He's just so yeah. thankful. And anytime he can thank anyone else, like every police officer we walk past, he walks over, shakes their hand and goes, hey, man, thank you for all the work that you're wow. doing. Every military people who's the first person to buy him a drink, every everything like that, he is that guy. Honestly and authentically, he is that guy. Um, so Max, uh, Max and I met on Captain Phillips, um, and we became friends. And he literally, he really, 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 man, he took me under his wing. I owe a lot of where I'm at today because of Max, and not that he was giving me hookups or handouts. He was giving me what I really needed, which was guidance and an authentic support. You know, Max and I actually didn't work together after Captain Phillips. We never worked together again until Manson Brothers, you know, almost 10 years later, um, nine years later, eight years later. I mean, like, like, like yeah, a yeah, yeah. Amount of time. Yeah. In that time we were, we were very close, but he was helping me to shape my career. And I always came to him for advice and I came to him for ideas and for whatever it was. Right. You know, I always came to him looking for guidance. And of course, you know, there was always that point, you know, like anybody else, you know, I'm sitting there. I mean, he's, he's, he's a very well-known, you know, very successful actor and everything. And I'm like, Oh man, you know, we're like been hanging out for a couple of years. I'm like, fuck man. Why doesn't he like help me get on a TV show or something like that? Right. Why? Why? Because I wasn't ready. Yeah. Because I was not ready. And I didn't know, but he knew it. But instead of holding it against me, he helped me to get ready. You know, he was helping me to do the work is what he was doing. He was showing me the path and then letting me do it, you know, and, and go out there and, and go to school and, and to take my time and to, you know, and to cut my teeth on other projects and to do this and to do that. And he was always there for support and guidance and everything sure, else. Sure. Um, and he was giving me what, like one of the most valuable gifts that you could possibly get in the industry, which is true mentorship and support and guidance rather than, because everybody that comes in the industry is uh, not everybody. I shouldn't use that word, but so many people that come in the industry, they're looking for a fucking handout. Yeah. Right. They're looking for a hookup. They're like, oh, if I meet this person, then they'll call some people for me or they'll just say, hey, I like you. You're a pretty rad dude. Chris, I'll just pull you on this TV show with well, me. It's because it's everybody's how they got discovered story. Oh, Marilyn right. Rose just sitting out on the sidewalk and somebody discovers her. Like, so you expect manna from heaven in Hollywood. Right. You don't expect to have to climb the ladder and work every rung up. 
You just right. expect that somebody's going to see your natural God-given talent just blossoming as you do your laundry. And somehow right. that's it's a great story that you can tell on talk shows for the next 50 years. And that's right. what everybody's looking for, I think, right? Right. And that is that is such the rarity. Anybody who's <laughs> listening out there, that's not how the industry works. 99.9% repeating of the time. It's a it's a crazy story because it's not the norm. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. oh, everyone has heard that. The real story, and this is actually one of the things where I've, I take it upon myself. And again, why I consider myself so lucky and I'm so grateful for it. I have a lot of friends that have been acting longer than like people that I started acting with back in Virginia, right? Or they had been acting way before me. I met them and they were a season. I was looking to them for advice when sure. I was in Virginia. And now 10 years later, a lot of these people are coming to me for advice. And I'm saying, mm. why the fuck don't you know this shit? Mm. And I came to figure it out it's because no one's told them or because they haven't learned or they didn't do the work or whatever the case is. But the fact of the matter is, and this is what it goes back to Max and why I'm so fortunate to be where I'm at isn't because of me. It's because of these great people that I have met along the way who always gave me honest, sincere support and guidance. Like I never had, we have all, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've had those act, or have learned from the, those acting teachers. They're fucking charlatans. They have no clue what they're doing. They're just trying to fuck the students or they're trying to do this or they're trying to, you know, like this, these horror stories. Yeah. yeah. And all of my, all of my acting teachers were the most authentic, knowledgeable, working, like incri- I never had that charlatan. And so I eventually go there and I go to Michael Howard and I go to the studio of New York and, I, and I'm, I'm up here. And now friends will be like, Hey Dave, can you come audit this acting class with me? And I'm like, sure. And I go in there and I'd be there for five minutes with this. Yeah. And this acting teacher's like, Oh, Hey, blah, 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 blah. And I would turn to my friend and be like, run, run. And they're like, Oh, don't you think they're great? I was like, no, they are full of shit. They're complete frauds. And this is what's going on. Get away fast. But the only reason I know that is because I've had my, 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 my compass has been calibrated. Yeah. Yeah. The good fortune of having that. And like what we talked about before, the industry is so convoluted. Like there's just so much shit and there is no direct path to success. And you can do, you can go to all the best schools and do all the best work and be the most talented person. It doesn't actually mean shit. It increases your likelihood of success, but it doesn't guarantee it. Right. Right. And so many people get lost in the industry because they literally just have no idea which way to go. They've ne- they've been filled with a bunch of bullshit of the way things are when they're not, or they've been told a bunch of fraudulent stuff, or they've been given a bunch of bad guidance, and and the, and it screws them, you know. And for whatever reason, they never get the right information, and it screws them over, you know. And I haven't had that. You know, I've had like the right information from the get-go and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I'm also going to throw something out here because while you're talking, the thing that comes to my mind is how valuable though the military experience has been for you that I don't know. And I don't, and I say that not just because of what you're talking about, but also how many people don't get it and don't progress in the career. And I think there is something about not that everybody has to go be a SEAL, far from it, but I do think there is something about forced hardship in some ways that I, I would I, I would have, my career, w- w- 
back when I cared about that kind of thing would have been different had I gone in the, in the military beforehand. I think it's important to do art last in your life. I think it's tough to do right off the bat uh, yeah. because you don't know enough. You haven't suffered enough. You haven't lived enough. And it's too important for not enough of a good reason. And you have to know, you have to see how unimportant it is to be able to actualize its importance in your life the way it needs to be framed. And I, I think that's what your experience bears out, in my opinion. I could not agree with you more. It's, it's, yeah. um, well, I mean, I always give this analogy, especially for as an actor, you know, I'm sure artists in general, but I can only speak for, you know, our, our work. Um, you are your fucking colors. When we act, all we have to draw from is our humanity and our life experience and, and, and our history and our emotions and our highs and lows. And that those are the human experience is our pastels. That is what we have. So when you see kids, it's actually one of the reasons when I was when I was auditioning for MFA programs. Mm. And I remember sitting in the callback process for a few very, I mean, the, the, the big schools, right? Yeah, true. And I'm sitting there going, why the fuck am I here? Like I'm, I was at the time, I was like, I'm a 34-year-old former SEAL. And I'm looking to go to school with a bunch of 20, 22-year-old. Right. And I asked one of the guys um, at, at these panels at one of the schools. And I said, you know, when he's like, do you have questions for me? And I go, yeah. Out of curiosity, what is it about me that you're interested in? I haven't been an actor for that long. I haven't been this. I haven't been that. And he goes, that's why. Mm. It's like, I can teach you acting. I can't teach you life. And you've had life. You've done a million other things besides for act. You've had experiences in your life that are going to, all I have to do is teach you how to tap that. But I can teach someone to tap it, but if they don't have anything, yeah. to tap, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, you have, you are coming with very rich, vibrant colors to paint with. I just have to teach you to paint. Where do you feel your weakest as an actor now? What do you want to work? I know it's a loaded question, but I mean, where, if you have vulnerabilities, if there's something, is there something that you still find your, you know, mountain you're trying to climb in your skill set? Um, uh, 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 I mean, I think it goes, um, I think I still, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. I, I understand. Expectation and insecurity, um, probably. Um, I struggle a lot of times with trying to show talent or trying huh. to show. I think that there's a part of me that's still trying to prove to myself and to other people that I'm not just the boring seal actor, huh. that there is so much more to me that I'm not what those people assume that I am. And the truth is I'm not, but that leads me to, I still don't trust that that will just be there yeah. and that the, it is true. And therefore I don't need to show it. I still feel like I need to show it sometimes, you know, or a lot of times sure. you know, where, where sure. I'm sitting there saying, I feel like I have to come out there and be like, no, look how good I am. Or look at this or look at that. Or I'm not that fucking robot guy. Like, look at all, look at my emotional right. availability. Look at all this kind of stuff which obviously just hides it. It's right, 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 right. Be doing. Um, but that is the challenge. Of course. You know? like, totally understandable. Yeah. I think that that's my biggest hurdle that I'm working with right now is like, 
we talked about that pendulum, right? Like the time when I was so strapped because I was the seal and I had the expectation and then it swung the other way. And it's like, I did everything to deny that I was a seal. And now I'm slowly coming back towards center, uh, which is, you know, hopefully where it gets to, but there is still that expectation of me trying to prove too much. Totally. I'm, not, I'm not that guy. Totally. I'm not that, I'm not that robot dude, you know? So what's the dream role if you, and I know it'll change over the years, but right now, what are you like, boy, I would get out of bed at 3.00 AM to do that for four months straight. If somebody could offer me this, mm-hmm. I'd love to play a bond villain. I can imagine why, but I'm going to ask why anyway. Uh, well, because I mean, like my favorite things are, you know, playing characters. I mean, one of my favorite characters I've ever played was Iago. And um, because to me, a very well-written villain, especially like to me, I would love to play like a superhero villain, like a Bond villain or like a, like a Marvel universe villain, you know, or somebody like that. The reason being um, is because they're the best fucking written characters in the movie sure. you know, by far. And most of the time, if you're a hero, all you need to be is relatable and likable. If you're the villain, you need to be fearsome, relatable, likable. You need to, you have to wear so many more hats. You're like the hero plus as the villain, you know. And every hero is only good as their villain. So really, in a in a in a production like that, especially something like that, where you're talking about, the, you know, James Bond's only as heroic as whoever the villain is that he's fighting at mm-hmm. that time. You know, the Avengers, the Avengers are only super cool because of Thanos, right? Like it's like that's that's what we need, right? So, and in those characters, particularly again, when you go like look at the Bond ones, their motivations are oftentimes so human and so honest, and they're not really a villain. Like, and I and I love it because so often when those characters are are are, are portrayed well, they're more human than the hero. And all of a sudden, you sit there and go, "Wow! If I was in their position, I would probably do the exact same." Thing. <laughs> Right. Maybe I should root for the, the villain because I fucking get him, man. I get it. And who's I, your who's your favorite Bond villain out of all the oh ones? God. Um, oh man, you know, there's there's so many of them. Uh, you know, and um, um, God, and I'm blanking on freaking one of his names right now, and this is like so terrible of me. I, I, so when you were talking about relatable villains, I was like. I could sort of relate to um, uh, Christopher Lee, not so much his his reasoning, but in the Man with the Golden Gun, just the type of person he was. It, it for some reason I was I was like, I, it wasn't my worldview, but I was like, yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, I, I see how that works. I think um, Moonraker, uh, the, the, that guy was. I was like, oh, that's a point. Yeah, you want to colonize the moon? I get it. Sure, yeah. there's something to that. Yeah, I, I can dig that. Well, I mean, I think one of my um, one of my favorites, and he's also just one of my favorite actors. I don't have a favorite because I have different things that I love about multiple really good actors, you know, and they all make up like my kind of idealization of the work. Um, but I love, love, love Javier Bardem. Yeah, yeah, the freaking guy. Like, I love his work in general, and I thought as a Bond villain, he was just fucking sensational. He was you know? great. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like those, those sorts of characters are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. they're so intelligent 
so charismatic, so human, so lethal and dangerous where you're like, it's like, it's like, a, like they're like a Panther, you know, where you're sitting yeah. there going, God, these guys are so powerful, but so dimensional and so layered and interesting. Um, yeah, I think that That's that, that would be my yep. particular, and I, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know. Did you watch my demo reel by chance? I did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first scene in that where I'm with the other gentleman by the car mm-hmm. or sitting yeah. right there, like those kind of characters are the ones that I love to play the most. Um, and kind of where I really want to push. I want to experience all the different stuff. You know, I want to do right. a rom-com and I want to do all these other kind of things. But those are like my bread and butter where it's just like, yeah, these are the kind of roles that would make me freaking giddy. Like can't sleep at night because you're right, just right. massively, you know, chomping at the bit. Can't yeah. wait to get after it. Would you do stage again? Oh, absolutely. I can't wait to get back on stage. Can't that's wait. Very cool. That's very yeah. cool. That's uh, that's great to hear. I know once you go to LA, you have to renew your passport to get back on stage a lot of times. So that's, <laughs> that's good to know. That's always it's good. You would do that. True, man. Um, um, listen, dude, you've been wildly generous with your time, but I, I would, I'd feel remiss if I didn't ask you specifically about Manson Brothers, because mm-hmm. I know that was a, uh, there was a lot going on there. So t- tell me about it. Tell me about uh, your involvement and what people should know about it. Well, first of all, did you see it? Yeah. I did not. No, no. I saw okay. the trailer. Yeah. Do, 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 please do, do. Okay. It's, okay. It's so good. It's so fun. Okay. Um, so, so Manson Brothers was, uh, you know, is a, for anybody who is out there listening, it's called the Manson Brothers Story of the Midnight Zombie Massacre. It's, uh, it's out in theaters right now, but it's available on Amazon Prime and iTunes and all these kind of places. Uh, stars uh, Max Martini, uh, Adrian Posdar, D.B. Sweeney, Michael Hearn. Uh, Boss Rutten, Randy Couture, uh, uh, Mike Carey, and Chris Margentis, and uh, Jay Lund, and, and a whole like, but so Max directed it, and Mike and Chris uh, produced it and wrote it. And Mike and Chris, uh, Mike is actually a, a Marine and uh, was on there, and is now a uh, is now a writer and a producer and an actor. And they were actually him and Chris were actually pro wrestlers. For, for real up in Chicago. And years later, they decided they were going to make this movie and their, their pro wrestling persona was the Manson brothers. Right. And so they decided they're like, man, what if we had this thing where we were like all washed up and we're like, has been pro wrestlers where we're still, but now we're on the B minus circuit, you know, right, like, right, right. And like reveling in our former glory, but we're performing like underground bars and shit like that, you know, and, or there's a zombie outbreak. So all of a sudden we're like these freaking underdog B list pro wrestlers that end up being pushed into a zombie pandemic. So think pro anti-hero pro wrestlers suplexing zombies and shit like that, you know, and like smashing them around. It's like that kind of fun. Right. Um, And that's, that's kind of what the movie was about. And it's, it's, it's a dark, you know, it's a dark, zombie comedy and right. uh, it's a beer. I like to tell everyone it's a beer and pizza, like get some pizza, get some beer, kick it up, leave the kids away. And <laughs> which is a bummer because my kid loves pro wrestling. And we actually just went to a B minus league pro wrestling event. We've gone to one like every month for the past couple of months. So he will be bummed, but maybe I'll oh, just keep the oh, action scenes aside. Oh, he's only, he's only six. So oh, yeah, 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 probably yeah. still a little, there's, there's a lot of, really about that. Yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of bombs. Sure. Um, but anyway, so uh, so Max calls me up at one point and, you know, you know, and has me come in. He's directing the movie. 
like I said, this is the first time in our, in our friendship that he, that we were looking to work together and it was such a great, you know, thing. Originally I auditioned for another smaller role in the movie because they were trying to get their names for distribution, mm-hmm. but back and forth, back and forth, ultimately one of the names got, and then like literally just a couple of weeks before filming started, he calls me up and was like, Hey dude, are you interested in playing Carson Murdoch, which is the lead villain of the movie, the antagonist. And I'm like, that would be fantastic. Carson's such a good character. Like he's such, he's the narcissistic Adonis, like douchey pro wrestler. He's just so full of himself, but he's actually like an A-lister who's slumming it with the guys, you know? And it's like, all he's just such That's a- That's awesome. Such a, he's like the kind of character where you just love to hate him. Sure. Kind of a deal. Uh, so in the end, that was the one that we uh, we ended up booking me as and went and, uh, and, and, and portrayed. And the movie set was- without the risk of pissing anyone off uh, was one of the best experiences I've ever had in the industry. And it goes to the whole leadership team and especially to Max that, I mean, dude, we had Mike O'Hearn who was like Titan in the, you know, when he's like one of the biggest dudes on the fucking planet, right. Randy Couture, Boz Rutten, um, Mike Kerry uh, was, uh, you know, was a Marine and a, uh, was a no shit bare knuckle karate practitioner, uh, did bare knuckle underground, like MMA fights and all right. this kind of stuff. And th- there were a shit ton of guys that were all MMA guys and everything. Right. Two thirds of the military set was, or excuse me, of the movie set was all military vets. It was, and it was like the roughest movie set I've ever been on. And it was the coolest down to earth, like yeah. most yeah. fun, respectful, kind movie set I've ever, like one of them I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and, and most of that, I got to give all the credit to Max on that because he just created this environment of love and support and, and brotherly camaraderie. And everyone was there just to have a great time and make a great production. There was no drama. There were no egos. There was no whatever kind of behavior. Everyone was just there as a community and we had such a great time and I've had so many people either I've read on reviews or in, in, in critic reviews, or I've heard on interviews or people have just said, and they all make a comment. They go, dude, is it just me? You look like you guys are having so much fun in that movie. That's fucking awesome. That's fucking awesome. That's awesome that you got that and that you got that. It didn't just stay on set, but it translated to the screen. That's yes. huge. That's phenomenal. And it's funny. Cause you know, we were actually talking about this with, with, my nonprofit with Fed Rep, um, that you know, because we're a veterans theater company, uh, you know, people often say, you know, oh, that's great, you're trying to help vets and all that. I'm like, no, 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 we're not, we're not trying to help veterans. We're trying to help the theater. And I feel like there's something to that in the film industry and in showbiz in general, in all aspects of the performing arts. Where and, and I, I've said this before, and I don't like how I phrase this, so I'm probably going to walk this back at some point. Um, Because it's coming, it comes off too harsh, and I don't mean it to be um, a put down. But people in the military that go into, especially the performing arts, have a lot that can lead by example in a lot of ways for the performing arts because of what you talk about, because of perspective, and because with the MMA fighters as well. Like you've been through actual hardship, so this has showbiz then has its rightful place in your life. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's just the right amount, but you get that through a lot of extreme life experience. It's hard to do that when from the embryo, you have been cultivated to go into showbiz. And when that is your only life path. And I think a lot of the things we see, and this is, I don't want to soapbox here or put you on the spot, but 
my, my thumbnail sketch of this is I think a lot of the problems we see in showbiz um, from lack of story diversity to behind the scenes shenanigans and all that comes from the fact that you built a culture around showbiz and without a lot of life experience beforehand without a lot of life experience to put it in its rightful place. And as a result, it gets very incestuous. It gets very close-minded and, and misconduct increases and, you know, diva-like behavior on set and all the other things that you're talking about were absent from your movie um, are there because you don't have the people that you had on set. And I know you're talking about leadership was great, but I would say probably if you're saying two thirds of the set was ex-military, that has to count. That has to mean something. That's, that's a great point, Chris. It, it, it totally is. And, you know, I, I had a um, kind of to echo on that, you know, I was doing uh, I was doing tech week for uh, I, was, I was performing with a, with a stage company when I was, you know, uh, traveling out of New York and everything. And there was a point where, you know, we're, we're in tech hell week, right? You know, we're doing freaking tech uh, before we're opening the next week. And, you know, or we go into, you know, sneak previews and everything like that. And there's a point where I'm on the stage for like 30 minutes by myself while Dave, move to Mark one, you know, lights and then move this, move this. And then they have a, a technical issue that they have to fix the light. And I'm just laying on the stage. I'm just chilling, you know, like waiting and waiting. This is after I went to school in New York and everything right. like that. And, and literally one of the other actors came walking over to me for a second and was like, Hey man, you want a water or something? And I was like, dude, that'd be awesome. So they go and get me a water and they come out. Cause they're like sitting in the dressing room, like chilling out. And then they come walking back out and they go, dude, I would be so pissed right now why are you like just chilling? I go. And I said, I go, cause no one's going to die. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's look at the reality. I'm getting paid money to pretend. And I'm sitting on a huge ass stage and we're about to open in front of a massive freaking audience. I have the pretty cool freaking job. And if the cost of that is that I have to sit on stage for an extra 30 minutes while they fix a light, I'll be okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, 100%. life isn't, isn't, it's not that bad totally. really in the, in the big perspective of things, you know, Dude, that's, that's the moral of this whole episode perspective, the value of perspective. You just yeah. can't understate it. Yeah. 100%. And gratitude and gratitude. That's right. Yeah. And they go hand in hand. I, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. The better, the better your perspective is and gratitude will inherently, um, um, you know, and they, and they will, and they will come back, you know, of that whole thing. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think what you've had to say to legitimately, I think it's going to be helpful to a lot of people. I think that, I think that means a lot. Um, I think it gives them perspective, you know, that people can learn from your example and, and you don't have to go relive your experiences uh, to get the same value. But I think learning from it, I think sets a really strong example. Thank you. And, and, and just to go onto, I do agree with you, like on your, on your assessment of like what happens on the, on the sets. I totally agree with that, you know, and especially like we hit on before as an actor, your life and your human experience is the pastels that you have to work with and what you have to create, you know, like, and we can, we can pretend and we can empathize and we can do all that kind of stuff, but there, there comes a place of knowing from experience you know, and, you know, it, it, there comes a point of knowing from experience, like truly knowing and being able for your body to go there and go, I know what this is like for real. And if you're in a movie and you're pretending and you're sitting there saying, oh, you know, my best friend is just got hit by a car and is dying right. and I'm right. trying to talk to him and everything. 
we can empathize and we would never want that. Right. But right, it's like, we right. can empathize. But I was like, if you are going to tell me that you can truly embody it, like someone who has actually been there and had a close loved one die in their arms or has been right there while someone's dying, I'm going to say, are you sure? Did you ever work with Patsy Rodenberg? Uh, I know she does a lot of work. She's done a lot of work with different conservatories as a speech coach. She's British. She I for know years the over name. there. I did not. I have not worked with her. Uh, I only mentioned because I know she worked with Michael Howard Studios a bunch as well. Actually, but yes, I did. I worked with her at Michael Howard. I was wondering. Did you? Okay. All right. So, yeah. uh, I, did she ever? Did you ever hear that story that she tells about um, when she did uh, theater when she did Shakespeare? at the prisons in England. And she was part of a prison program to teach inmates Shakespeare and have them do theater. And they couldn't do the full length plays because the person wouldn't let them do the whole play. They couldn't give them that much time, but they said, well, you can do like highlights. You can do select scenes and all that. And they did uh, the uh, Desdemona strangulation scene from Othello. And, uh, and afterwards the actor uh, that was playing Othello came up to her and said, it doesn't happen that quickly. <laughs> she said, I don't want to know how you know that. But she was like, but then she went back and she looked at the original text and realized that there was actually blank verse there that Shakespeare had actually allotted the right amount of time. She just had to cut it down because they were pressed for time. Yeah. Anyway, to the point, I thought that was, that was my best, the best story I've ever heard about real life experience mattering to be a performer and, and like actually helping you do the work and feel it and communicate it artistically. Um, not to relate inmates to military personnel, but I just, it's experience and, and it's, it's life. life. Yeah. It's life. It's life in the extremes. Yeah, that's right. Dude. It, oh, oh, I'm it, sorry. It, no, no, go I ahead. I throw one last thing in there. I think that one of my, one of my journeys, and I think that this is something hopefully everyone can relate to. Just like what my uh, what my teacher was telling me, where he said, "Dave, but you're hiding." What he was really talking about was saying that part of your life, in my case, being a seal, that I was hiding from because I was trying to find you know this other artistic side. It's like that is part of you, and it is therefore it's part of the actor's ego. It's something that you have to share. You have lived this and had this, and so in order to hide that and shy away from it when it's relevant is to shy away from a part of what makes you human. And I think it goes back to, again, what we were saying, the actor's ego, every single person out there in any aspect of your life, not just being an actor, but whether you're in a relationship or you're talking to a friend or anything like that, you are you. And you are you because you are the sum of every experience, good and bad, everything that you have ever lived through. And all of that goes into making you who you are in this particular day. And none of it's wrong. No matter what, you know, like, you know, I've had people, one of the things I, it's a pet peeve when I do coaching, like for developmental coaching, people say, well, Dave, I, I, you know, I had all this, I did all this terrible shit in my life. How do I start over? And I go, you don't, you just move forward. There's no such thing as starting over everything that you've ever existed since the time you came out of the womb is a part of who you are. And it always will be. You don't start over. You grow with, you evolve, you learn more, you know, like, I'm never not going to be a seal that is forever going to be a part of me, whoever I am and everybody else, you know, the same, sure, the same. Sure. you will always yeah, be yeah. what you have already been, but you just add on 
And as you add on your understanding of the lessons that you learn and who you are and all that just evolves and it continuously goes. So when people sit there and say, oh, I used to be, I hear a lot of times, oh, I used to be a criminal or I used to be a drug addict or whatever the case is. Fuck it. I'm not that guy anymore. I was like, yeah, you are. Yeah. There's a piece of you that is, and there's nothing wrong with that. Take it, grow from it and move forward and appreciate these. I'll tell you what, man, I would much rather take a rehab lesson from a guy who was a former drug dealer. Yeah. 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 Well, and I also just to make it personal to your exact example, I think you're opening the aperture for people on what is possible for a military person in the performing arts that you don't have to be pigeonholed. And, and I mean, you're, you're Jackie Robinsoning this thing. I mean, there's not, there has not been a lot of recent military veterans, certainly not combat veterans, certainly not seals going into the performing arts. So you're opening people's minds to what is possible, not just as an audience member, but also for ex-military folks that they can go, hey, I don't have to live up to what I was. I can incorporate that into who I am now and who I see myself being. And as you said, add it to your palate. It's just a deeper, richer palate now. I love that. Dude, you've been way too generous. I, this has been two and a half hours, and I feel like we've been talking for 30 minutes. This has just been a delight, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on and for passing these messages on to people. Like, yeah, I love I love that the message of, of the empowerment and what you're trying to pass to people on, on your in your podcast. Anytime, dude. Any, I'm glad that we got to do it. And anytime, man. Absolutely. Anytime. There, there's more to be. There's there's more to talk about down the road too. I, I'm I'm. It, this has been a real pleasure and eye opening and refreshing. And yeah, I, I just can't thank you enough for coming on. I know like your, my email and phone are blown up. Yours are too. Probably our friends and family all think we've been kidnapped at this point. So (laughs) uh, dude, I, I really appreciate it, man. Let's talk down the road. Absolutely. Christopher. Thank you so much for your time. That was the savage wonder of David B Meadows. Great time, right? You've been listening to savage wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the veterans repertory theater. The opinions expressed Do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. And as Dave said during the episode, he's not a licensed psychologist. So uh, take everything you heard with the appropriate grains of salt, even though it is super interesting, insightful, and open my eyes to a lot of stuff. Um, As far as we go, as far as Veterans Repertory Theater goes, check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. Obviously, Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You can do that where you're currently listening to this podcast. Or if you want to go to our website, you go to vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing. Again, that's now hyphen playing at vetrep.org. And you can check out everything you want to know about us. Subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our literary blog. So if you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, Subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog because not only are you going to get daily fiction or poetry of some sort, but it's also our de facto mailing list. So if you want to know what's going on with us, that's a great place to just get it delivered right to your inbox so you know exactly what's going on with us without you having to lift a finger. Obviously, we're all over social media, so find us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Veterans Repertory Theater. Again, Veterans Repertory Theater. 
And I know, as I say every week, no one knows how to spell repertory. So it is R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and theater is the American spelling E-R, not R-E. If you're on Twitter, you can also follow us at VetRepTheater there. If you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to Savage Wonder, if if you've been reading the literary blog, getting the daily poetry and announcements and all that stuff, and are like, hey, I've been jotting some stuff down. I'd love you to see it. Go to vetrep.org backslash submissions. So if you're on our vetrep.org website, go to the submissions tab and you can submit your work to our playwriting competitions. You can submit your work to the Savage Wonder Literary blog, um, or you can just shoot us, drop us a line and, you know, contact us. Let us know what's on your mind. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.